a, a, a very brief summary of what we talked about on Wednesday. Uh, we looked at some of the uh, physiological um, impacts that uh, trauma, stress, and fear can have on our bodies and minds. And now we're going to focus more on trauma specifically. Um, I know on Wednesday, Elizabeth went through the definition of trauma and the different types of trauma that exist and how they might, uh, how, how they can impact our, our, our view. Um, we watched a video with Healing Mean, which is, I hope everyone enjoyed that. Um, and we have a few videos today. So anyways, going into tra uh, trauma's impact and how it can negatively impact functioning and in a variety of ways. So the first aspect of this that we are going to talk about is how a, a traumatic experience or traumatic experiences can impact how our perceptions are shaped of the world. So sometimes when individuals have experienced something that would be uh, that would be traumatic to them, um, of course, one of the main tenets of trauma is that it impacts their sense of safety and what uh, what is considered safe and not safe. And so a new perception that someone might have is that the world is inherently dangerous. And that's kind of contrary to, you know, I, it, this one sometimes really difficult because we know the world is actually quite dangerous, but for the most part, it, we are in relative safety. Again, it's it's so hard to say that because we're dealing with a pandemic, we're dealing with um, uh, a, a really significant issue in Minneapolis, and so sometimes it's, it's really hard to uh, conceptualize this in that the world, you know, isn't maybe as dangerous as it can sometimes seem, but we talk, we can look at all of the risks that we take every day. And, and it actually is somewhat incredible of, you know, you know, looking at uh, Los Angeles traffic uh, in non-COVID times, of course, and, you know, you have millions of vehicles on the road and we're all following these same rules. And yeah, there are car accidents and people do get injured and sometimes die. But for the most part, every day, um, driving is something that is is, is kind of safe. Um, and it, again, I know that's sometimes hard to, to hear and it depends what type of experiences you've had. But for the most part, there, there's a there's risk. Um, but the world is somewhat safe to navigate through. However, when we have something that's negative that uh, uh, happens to us, that perception has changed. And I think a really uh, kind of a, a more poignant example is perhaps somebody who's grown up through um, childhood abuse, whether that's physical or uh, sexual or maybe even neglect, and, and that's viewed as trauma. You know, for most of us, we've had the, or I could at least speak to myself, that I've had the privilege of, you know, growing up with parents that kind of reinforce that that we're safe and um, but then there of course are, are individuals who have tra traumatic upbringings and they're not able to have that same perception of the world they grew up thinking that well parents aren't there to protect they're not there to maintain our safety or to comfort us um, they, they might be there to, to harm us or to hurt us so again, just an example of how that perception can really change. And there's this other perception that maybe people are bad, um, particularly if, if the traumatic experience was something uh, that somebody did to someone else. 
People may think after a traumatic experience that life has no intent or purpose, that perhaps they're not safe. I think that's probably the most common one that we, that we see, um, that I have no control over my life and that I'm worthless. So not everybody who experiences trauma experiences all of these perceptions, but these ones are pretty common, um, particularly when, uh, when perhaps that trauma is even uh, manifested in the way that we would call uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. So a few things I wanna point out about these perceptions that you'll notice that many of them are kind of all or nothing black or white state or black and white statements. Um, so like people are bad. Well, there are some people who are bad, but there's a lot of really good people there too. So that's a great example of a black and white statement um, where, it, where we can't have such a definitive response to cover such a broad category. Um, Again, this is a, a particularly common feature with, with unprocessed trauma. And um, the other uh, point I'd like to make is that the self-image is often damaged or altered in some sort of way. So perhaps, you know, the statement of I'm worthless and someone who's experienced a lot of um, physical or sexual trauma growing up or as an adult, um, when, when you're treated uh, and disregarded in such a horrible way that reinforces this concept that I'm worthless. So as, as providers and practitioners, we have a lot of, uh, uh, not undoing, I, I don't wanna say that, but we have a lot of these really negative black and white perceptions to, to deal with and navigate as we try to help the, those that we serve. So going into the next section of how trauma impacts those, and I think this one is probably one that you all see quite often, but it impacts our ability to maintain and sustain healthy relationships. And particularly when the trauma that somebody had experienced in their life happened within the context of a relationship. So if somebody's in a domestic violence relationship or similar to my example before of a of an adult who was uh, was abused as a child, whether sexually or physically, or, or of course even emotionally, um, that really shapes their ability to form relationships. And it's not it's not the fault of that individual who experienced trauma. This is how our brains work, and we'll talk a little bit more about this. But um, but similarly to what we discussed on Wednesday our brains create all these snapshots and they um, make these connections with what was going on at that time. And so, you know, looking at the example before of a, a parent who, who abused their child, you know, we, I think most of us view parents as people who provide safety and, and nourishment and, um, and love and compassion. And that's just an expectation. And so when that isn't fulfilled, how that impacts that person's ability to create relationships with others is going to be a little bit skewed. And again, no fault of their own, but their brains are kicking in and they're saying these close relationships can result in pain. And sometimes it can even be fear or, or a near-death experience. So it makes sense that somebody who may be perceived as an authority figure or in the helper position that somebody who has trauma, a survivor of trauma, may not be that trusting of you if you're that provider trying to go in and, and, and assist. Um, and it could be really frustrating for providers too, because I know you all care very much about those you serve. And sometimes those we serve 
they, they don't want to let us in. And we're like, I'm just here to help. You know, I, I, I'm not here to hurt you. Um, but we can imagine that, well, if they've been hurt by authority figures before, um, they have every right to be distrustful. They have every right to uh, have a lot of difficulty in creating some sort of uh, professional, healthy, therapeutic relationship with us as the providers. It may be hard for the survivor to trust their partner or allowing themselves to feel vulnerable. This is such an important point and it's, it's, so, uh, it's so significant and to really normalize this for, for individuals. Uh, survivors of trauma may wonder why, maybe they think there's something wrong with them that they're not able to, to feel vulnerable or they're unable to trust their partner. But this is, it's partially because of those warning signals that our brains are, are putting out. Again, they're being triggered be, by this uh, potential intimate relationship. And if they've had an intimate relationship before that was terrifying, then of course, it's, those warning signals are going to go off again when the possibility of an intimate relationship or even the possibility of becoming vulnerable is presented. And uh, of course, intimacy can be difficult or, or triggering to the survivor. You know, I, I think about um, those who ha have experienced uh, sexual abuse growing up. And um, I mean, the, their concept of intimacy was born out of something that was really, really horrifying. So trying to reshape that image and those expectations of intimacy can be a big hurdle for survivors of trauma. And again, I want to recognize that I, some of these are, this is not for, um, not everybody who experiences trauma has issues with relationships or challenges with relationships. It is really unique, but unique to each person. But these are some of the common trends that we tend to see. So talking about triggers, uh, Elizabeth talked a lot about this on Wednesday, or she started that discussion of triggers. And so, so let's go back and just really quickly review how our brain stores those memories. It creates these snapshots that it can store in the memory to keep us safe from something in the future happening to us again. So, uh, so those triggers, those things that got wrapped up into that memory, they can include a variety of things. And this is just a, a very limited list, but um, we have our five senses, of course, but then there's also, you know, the weather could be a, a possible trigger, objects that were present, um, words or phrases that were used, um, of course, places. Um, if somebody was traumatized while they were driving their car, um, getting in that car again might be really difficult because when they see that car, the brain is pulling out that snapshot and saying, okay, this was a, a near-death experience. This caused a ton of fear. And, um, and I don't want you to do that again. I don't want you to get in that same situation. So it triggers those emotions to say, to, to get our attention. And uh, our brain's just doing what it's supposed to do. It's just trying to keep us safe. Uh, unfortunately, when those triggers remain, um, they're triggered at times when we're not actually in danger. The threat has passed. And uh, and we'll talk later about how to kind of undo some of those triggers, how to uh, rewire those neural networks that were created in our brain so those triggers don't carry as much weight and power. Um, sometimes people don't realize that they are triggered or what triggers actually exist for them. And sometimes they may not realize this until the trigger is actually triggered, or sometimes they, somebody may be feeling 
randomly, uh, a survivor of trauma may be randomly feeling fear and have no idea why. Um, most likely, one of these things or something that's not even listed on here has been triggered and that reminder of the trauma is starting to come back into that individual's uh, awareness and, and consciousness. Um, I wanna, does anyone have questions uh, about triggers and about how trauma can impact relationships before I go on to um, the next area of how trauma impacts us? Um, and we could, I'll just wait to see if there's any, any questions or comments, but you could probably connect this to the story of Regina that we shared on Wednesday, where, you know, she had, I think the, a good example is, you know, she had that fresh cup of coffee. And um, when she, when she had the car accident, the coffee went everywhere, of course, and she was able to smell that before she lost unconsciousness. And it may not be a trigger for her in the future, but it certainly could be. It was a pretty powerful uh, uh, sensation and that, that she smelled that. Um, and I, I can imagine that sensation getting attached to that memory and that neuron, that uh, neural network being created. So, so avoidance is another area that trauma impacts an individual. And this is very closely tied with triggers. And it, 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 I, I'm sure many of you have heard of this and it makes a lot of sense that people don't wanna be triggered. They don't want those emotions of fear or uh, terror or horror to come back. Of course not, I don't know who would want those things. So recognizing that those triggers exist um, an individual is going to try to avoid those things so they don't have to relive that experience. Um, I'll share an example, and I'm, I'm sure I, I might use this example later on, but when I uh, lived and worked in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, I worked with a, uh, with a woman for quite some time who initially came in because she was uh, presenting with a lot of anxiety around driving. And it wasn't just driving, but it was driving over the, uh, we called it the GNO or the Greater New Orleans Bridge, which went over the Mississippi River. And um, she lived, I, I believe she, if I'm remembering correctly, it's been a while, I believe she lived on the West Bank um, and her, her work was on the East Bank. And so every day driving over that bridge, she wanted to avoid it, but it was one of those things. There's absolutely no way to avoid driving over the bridge <laughs> if you live on the other side of your employment. Um, but she tried, you know, tried doing, uh, tried being able to work from home, um, tried to telecommute, but unfortunately her work wasn't allowing of that, which is why she came in to see me because uh, this anxiety when she would go over that bridge was so intense. And, when I worked with her, it, it brought up these memories of how she had to deal with the flood um, from Hurricane Katrina. And what's interesting too, is that it also brought up memories that she didn't necessarily witness in that moment. Um, she had lost a brother as a result of Hurricane Katrina. She wasn't with him at the time, but he had to uh, be evacuated from his home after the floodwaters came up to the roof. And he was uh, taken in a boat to uh, one of the highway overpasses. And eventually he was taken to Houston to stay in the shelter. And then he later on died because the waters that he was in were so dirty and he had um, he had a, a really bad open cut as a result of trying to evacuate. And so she would often be triggered to this memory that she didn't necessarily have, but she was able to envision this. And so she would see the water 
course, think of her own experience, but also think of the experience that she imagines her brother uh, most likely had. And that was terrifying for her, as I can uh, certainly empathize with. I, I don't want to say I could understand because I, I didn't have that experience, um, but I, I could only imagine how, how terrifying that was. So uh, avoidance is something else I think is crucial to identify with avoidance. You know, we sometimes view this as a negative thing. Um, avoidance is actually really, really important. Now, of course, avoidance can turn into a maladaptive coping mechanism, but when somebody is dealing with trauma and especially in, in a treatment setting and we're developing a relationship, it's okay to avoid. If somebody is not ready to talk about their trauma, that is not something that we want to push. So as a, as a professional in this, I, I, there are some cases where I actually contribute to their avoidance. I will say, let's not, let's not talk about this right now. Let's wait until we're in a little bit of a better place. Let's wait until we have different coping mechanisms or the ability to regulate how we're feeling in that moment. Um, because if we ignore the triggers and we kind of dive right in, that person may be overwhelmed. They may be re-traumatized. So again, avoidance can be really, really important and a very beneficial coping mechanism. But as we know, it does, uh, it, it can also lead to a, a maladaptive coping mechanism. And, you know, I, another example I could think of is, you know, substance use. Um, Sometimes, oftentimes, people use substances as a way to avoid um, to avoid the symptoms that they're experiencing. And we view substance abuse certainly as, as maladaptive as it has so many other negative implications to our health and mental well-being. However, there is some adaptive uh, component to substance use. And when I hear some of the stories of what people have experienced, and then they, uh, they've reported that they, you know, they tried to numb themselves with, with substance use, I, I, I certainly can't blame them. I, I can't imagine how horrible it would be to deal with flashbacks uh, to, or to deal with these overwhelming thoughts and fears. So um, again, it's, it's kind of a fine balance. Avoidance is, is helpful. Long term, it's not going to be so helpful. Um, so I do see a, a question, so I yeah. want to address that. You even asked a question about the word triggers, and as you're talking about substance use, um, what it means when it, or sort of how does the use of that word relate when it's used in the substance use context uh, for people who are recovering from issues with substance use um, to avoid triggers like people, places, and things, and yeah. I, I assume she's asking about sort of the relevance of that word or the relatedness of the word. Um, and I guess it sort of means the same thing. It's just yeah. how one person would navigate dealing with those triggers really would depend on where they're at in their recovery from whatever trauma they've experienced or the substance use disorder or issue that they have experienced, right? I mean, I think David's going to talk about this during treatment, but at a point, part of treatment can be working through approaching those triggers and trying to reduce the uh, difficulties and um, anxious arousal that can arise from that and distress. Um, and similarly with substance use, I think the goal in long term is to work through having some of those triggers be less and less powerful. Um, but just as David was saying it, at the beginning, um, that's it's something to watch out for. Um, there, it's a, a marker of vulnerability at that moment. 
Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Elizabeth. That's really helpful and a great question, Eve. I, I appreciate it. And it's it's really interesting how there's parallels in, in the use of triggers, but also there's a great deal of overlap too. So really great. Thank you. So dissociation. Um, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about this. It's an important concept and it can be a really confusing concept as well. So I, I know everyone can read, but I'm going to read it anyways, just in case someone's just kind of sitting back and relaxing and not really looking at the screen. Um, this definition comes directly from the DSM or the Diagnostic Statistical, uh, excuse me, Statistical Manual of Psychiatric Disorders, and that's by the American Psychiatric Association. So dissociation is the splitting off of clusters of mental contents from conscious awareness. The term is also used to describe the separation of an idea from its emotional significance and affect. Often a result of psychic trauma, dissociation may allow the individual to maintain allegiance to two contradictory truths while remaining unconscious of the contradiction. So there are so many directions we could go with this definition. <laughs> it's such a, it's, it's a very big term. Um, so I'm going to use the most, uh, let's start off with a very basic example of how we all use dissociation or we all find ourselves, we don't, it's typically not intentional, but we all um, sometimes engage in this. And I don't know if anyone has had that, this experience of, where you're driving to work, you know your route well, you take the same route every day. And, you know, every once in a while, you kind of like snap back into reality and realize that, wow, I drove to work. I'm here in my car, I just got in my parking spot. I don't have much of a re recollection of my drive over here. And it's a little bit unsettling at first. Like, did I run any red lights? Like, I'm here safe. <laughs> what happened? But it, it, it's sometimes we get lost in our thoughts and our minds automatically know how to get to work. It's not like we completely lost consciousness, but you could see that there was a really clear separation of your conscious mind and also some of this executive function that's getting us to work. It just kind of becomes automatic and we dissociate from that experience. Uh, again, I don't know if anyone else has had that. I unfortunately have had that happen a few times. Um, and yeah, it's a little unsettling. And sometimes you could joke about it like, oh, I had one of those moments today where I drove to work and I don't remember. And also I, I should specify, uh, this is without any substances involved. So driving drunk is one thing, which is highly discouraged. Um, there we go, Maribel, thank you so much for validating that. Um, so th that's an example, kind of like an everyday example. Uh, well, it's not quite everyday, but that's an example of, of dissociation. Um, now to go to kind of a, another extreme and how dissociation is actually, can be a very helpful, uh, helpful coping mechanism is that, uh, I am working with an individual who she uh, has shared with me how, uh, as a child, um, she was raped by her father. And, you know, she, I, I might have shared this example on Wednesday, but she wasn't able to, to run from that. She's a child. She wasn't able to fight again. She's a, she's a child. So she, she froze in that moment. And, and in that moment of her freezing, uh, she would dissociate from that experience. So it's like this protective mechanism where her, uh, her mind just kind of wandered while there are these horrible things 
happening to her body. Um, she was able to somewhat escape from that. And um, I think she'd also, she also has described it as like almost being able to, to watch from afar, but then not watching and kind of turning away. And um, again, a really fascinating process. It's, um, and in a case like that, I am so happy that she was able to dissociate in that. Um, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to, to not be able to, um, even if it's just a little bit, escape some of the, the horrific things that are happening to you. So again, that's kind of on the other extreme. Now, with dissociation, you know, with the example I just shared with, with, a, with a woman that I'm working with, that was a very adaptive uh, coping strategy. Um, that was a really important thing, but once the trauma ends, and I don't mean just once that particular trauma ends, but once she's safe, when she, she grew up and she was no longer um, faced with that uh, threat of, of her dad, um, sometimes dissociation can, can continue to happen. And so when you're working with somebody who has a, who has a trauma history and has survived, Sometimes we can see that. We can see that they all of a sudden during session or when we're working with them or talking to them on the street, they automatically check out. And they may, it may seem like they're uh, just not, not really there, not paying attention. Um, and that could be an example of them dissociating in that moment. Um, and it could happen without us really wanting to do that. Um, so that's why this is certainly a, a maladaptive. That's when it crosses the line into a maladaptive coping mechanism. Now, dissociation can also be even more extreme. And, um, and I'm only going to speak a little bit about this. It's not my area of expertise, so I, I don't want to... Uh, um, yeah, I don't want to uh, say things that I, I don't have evidence to back up, but there's uh, a little bit more of an extreme of dissociative identity disorder, and I'm sure many of you have probably heard of this, and this is the disorder that was previously known as multiple personality disorder, and it's such a demonstration of how our brains can segment out these very unique and different identities. Um, again, a very classic example of, of a relatively extreme form of dissociation. So hyper vigilance. Um, this is when we are, uh, we're just a little bit more, we're really checking out our surroundings. We are feeling like we are on guard and that we are re ready to react to anything that comes our way. And so uh, you may startle easily, which is a little bit different than hypervigilance, but I kind of lump them together because I, I think they're very similar. Um, but you might have a really heightened startle response, or if somebody who's hypervigilant, you may notice that they're you know, certainly looking around, or they may notice something out of the corner of their eye that, you know, if we weren't hypervigilant, we probably wouldn't have even noticed. Um, but again, it's that sense of safety that has been um, uh, put in jeopardy, and our brains are activated to be on guard and to make sure that our, our brains want to keep us safe. So this is a really helpful thing. Being hypervigilant in a threatening situation is incredibly important. But then when that threatening situation passes, we may still feel hypervigilant and it may not be necessary to be that hypervigilant. It causes us to be, it's difficult to stay in the present moment. It's difficult to, you know, perhaps focus on what somebody else is saying to us. Um, it might be difficult to really be present in a relationship depending on the context of this. So uh, this is a pretty common feature that we see with those who have survived uh, trauma. But even if you 
have an experience where it wasn't necessarily traumatic, like we can still see this hypervigilance. If anyone's ever been in a car accident, and um, you know, sometimes it takes a while after that car accident, like where you're in a car and like you're just really, really focused on all the things going on around you out of fear that you're gonna you will get into another car accident. So again, not necessarily bad, but then it's really stressful and it's hard to be present. It's hard to think and um, yeah, not always helpful when it keeps going. And so that kind of segues into this past is present. Oftentimes survivors of trauma, they're responding to, uh, to those cognitions and emotions uh, in a way as if that trauma that they experienced in the past, as if it's happening today. So like going to that car, uh, excuse me, car accident example, perhaps that car accident was six months ago, but you're in your car now being really hypervigilant and looking out all of your windows and looking in your rearview mirror constantly to see if anyone's tailing too close. You're not actually responding to that present moment of being in a car where there may not be any threats, but that response is really to something that happened in the past. So this is such a key concept. And when you are working with somebody who has trauma and one of their responses may seem a little odd or may not seem proportionate to, um, uh, to what's going on, uh, it may be because that individual is actually responding to something that happened in the past, but the brain is triggering that response in the present. So we might, I, I only have about 10 minutes to go through five examples, um, which hopefully will be enough. And actually, I, let me just, I just wanna check my other slides here to make sure I'm allocating my time correctly. Oh, good, okay, I am. So uh, again, I know people could read, but I'm gonna read this out and then we'll try to make these connections. So uh, here's a situation, uh, Jennifer, this is a present situation. A person named Jennifer, she's unable to go to her uh, to go to new places alone out of fear that she might mess up or disappoint those that she doesn't know well. This includes going to stores, the bank, or even benefits offices. She does much better when she is with her close friend or her case manager. However, she still experiences intense anxiety and stands behind her friend or case manager. So you might look at this situation and say, well, that's, you know, if you knew nothing about Jennifer, um, why are you afraid to go to the bank? Um, you know, I've never had a scary experience going to the bank. Um, why are you afraid to go to the store? Um, some people really like shopping and um, it feels good, but this individual, Jennifer, is, is afraid of it. Without any other knowledge, this sounds, it sounds a little bit odd. Now, when we bring the past situation in, it gives us a little bit more perspective. Jennifer was repeatedly sexually, ooh, sexually assaulted by her father for most of her childhood. He constantly told her that she was a disappointment, a failure, and couldn't do anything right. Jennifer's father told her that if she was born a boy, she would have been much better. As a girl, she is only useful for one thing. Um, and I apologize about that. So some, a, a very intense situation, and this one is actually based off of a uh, off of somebody that I am working with. Of course, I've changed a few things around. Um, but now this gives us a little bit more perspective, but it doesn't quite explain why. So yes, yeah, she, Jennifer was uh, sexually assaulted. She was raped. I don't, I, not that I like to use that word. It's a harsh word, but it was a harsh situation and I don't think it should be minimized. 
Um, so she was raped repeatedly as a child. Um, but what does that have to do with going to the bank? What does that have to do with going to stores or getting her benefits? Ah, doesn't seem like there's anything. Well, let's bring in this connection. So Jennifer's mind is connecting the possibility of disappointing others with being sexually assaulted. When the possibility of disappointing others arises, Jennifer is paralyzed with fear. Jennifer recognizes that she doesn't need to be fearful in these situations, but she's unable to stop that fear. She blames herself for being incompetent and childlike. So now I hope this makes a little bit more sense. So even though the situations are very different um, from the past to the present, her brain, that amygdala, that little piece of brain that we talked about that kind of does our emotional responses and triggers our warnings, it was being triggered by this fear of disappointment. And while disappointing, like I don't wanna disappoint anybody, but if I do, I know I'm gonna be okay. I'm not necessarily fearful of it. But for her, it throughout her childhood, the concept of disappointing others, particularly her father, was directly connected with being raped. And so that fear, that disappointment, excuse me, when the possibility of disappointment pops up, the amygdala triggers that fear response. And then all of a sudden, Jennifer is reacting to something that happened in the past, but she's of course, she's currently in the present. And you'll notice in this situation, she even recognizes that, hey, this fear doesn't make sense. However, it's still there. And because it's still there, it, it can be really confusing. Um, it causes further judgment. And even if you know you don't have anything to be fearful of, when the fear is still there, it doesn't necessarily make it any better. Um, so let's go to another example. Um, here's an example with uh, an individual named Drew. Um, so Drew, dramatic. this is a present situation. Drew dramatically pushes others away anytime there is a possibility of forming a trusting relationship. He has been working with his substance abuse counselor for four weeks, but he stormed out of group and left the facility after the counselor asked him to share his feelings on sobriety. As he stormed out, he stated, I'm not putting up with this shit anymore. I hate you. So the past situation is Drew was raised by his mother who always struggled with bipolar mood disorder. Drew's mom was typically more concerned with her own emotional instability and did not respond well to Drew's calls for help or support. She would often physically beat Drew. However, this stopped as Drew grew and matured. So here we have a situation where we don't want to necessarily blame Drew's mom. She clearly struggled with bipolar mood disorder, and that created a, a difficult uh, dynamic of, of how she was able to respond to, uh, to caring for her child. Um, but then you, you think, okay, so he, she did sometimes beat him. She wasn't responsive to his needs. What does that have to do with Drew being in a substance abuse group where, you know, I'm assuming the substance abuse counselor isn't beating Drew. And um, uh, yeah, so uh, let's look at what the connection might be. So Drew grew up in a home where the person who was supposed to keep him safe was unpredictable and sometimes dangerous. Drew now connects people who are supposed to help him as unpredictable and possibly dangerous. As he develops relationships, he experiences fear and vulnerability when a true connection uh, begins to form. 
Drew lashes out before the other person has the opportunity to lash out at him as his mother often did. So in a way, we can recognize that this is a maladaptive way for Drew to deal with some of the fear and anxiety that comes up for him around relationships. But you could also see that there is some level, uh, you could look at a strength in here and that Drew is really trying to take control over the situation where he didn't have control as a child. Um, but, but now he does. And so he wants to be the one to lash out before that substance abuse counselor lashes out at him. Unfortunately, or, or fortunately, um, the substance abuse counselor isn't going to lash out at him most likely, and certainly hopefully not, but he is in that role of a, of a person who is supposed to help. So his amygdala is triggering this fear response, and he responded to that fear response, um, and that's where he lashed out at that substance abuse counselor. I imagine that many of you have experienced something similar to this um, in your role as a helper. I, again, like that, I want to help this person. I'm here to offer all of these services. I'm here to be a, a trusting uh, relationship. But th this person is so unwilling to, to work with me. Again, it can be really frustrating, like, what is wrong with you? But it's not what's wrong with that person. It's what they've been through. There's really nothing wrong with them. Their brain is doing exactly what it was trained to do, and that's to keep us safe. And then we'll do this example, and then we're going to go ahead and pass it on to Elizabeth. But there are two additional examples, but you'll have a copy of the slides, and you could um, read over those anytime you like. So Natasha insists upon sleeping in the chair that is close to the door in the woman's dorm area of the shelter. She refuses to sleep in a bed. When shelter staff are unable to accommodate these preferences, Natasha refuses to stay and leaves the facility to sleep on the streets. So that's the present situation. And not knowing anything else about her, you might say, why do you want to sleep in a chair? Like a bed is so much more comfortable. Why would you want to sleep with, or why would you want to sleep in the streets when you have a, you know, a shelter may not be the nicest place in the world, but you know, it's certainly better than the streets. Like, why is that? It doesn't make sense. So let's look at um, the past situation. As an adolescent living in the public housing project with her mother and sister, an intruder broke into their apartment through a window during the night and raped Natasha. So now we can see a little bit that there is a really horrible traumatic event that took place in Natasha's life. Again, it, it's different than what she's experiencing presently, but you can start to see that there are connections here. So the connection is Natasha continues to be hypervigilant, so she's, she always wants to see if there's a threat around her and wants to be aware of anyone entering or exiting the space where she is sleeping. If anyone does enter the dorm area who shouldn't be there, she wants to be the first person to witness the intrusion and respond. If she is not able to have this arrangement, she feels fearful and insecure. So this is also an example. I changed it a bit, but this is somebody that I worked with in New Orleans. And um, it took me a while to figure out this connection because I didn't know about this experience of when she lived in the housing project because it took her quite some time to share it with me and, and, and for good reason, of course. Um, but yeah, I was like, so I was really struggling with you know, why don't, why don't you try sleeping in the bed? You might sleep a little bit better, but honestly, she probably wouldn't because she would be so fearful 
that she wouldn't be able to see what's happening. And again, I think there's a little bit, not a little bit, I think there's a lot of strength in this, in that she wants to be in control. And she was able to, uh, or she tried at least, to uh, create her environment or her context in a way where she would be in control. Unfortunately, the shelter didn't didn't understand that, understandably so, and it might have been a fire hazard and, you know, for a variety of reasons, they probably couldn't have her sleeping in a chair in front of a door. That doesn't seem like the safest place. Um, but for her, that was her taking back control, and that was giving her a, a sense of empowerment that, like, if someone's going to come in here to do something bad to us, I'm going to be the first to know. I'm going to do my best to fight. I might get hurt in the process, but that's okay because I'm going to be in control of the situation, not this intruder. Um, so Beatrice, I uh, thank you for your uh, for your comment uh, uh, and, and kind of summary. But it's not what's wrong with that person, but what happened to that person, and it's so. Uh, worth reiterating that point. There, there isn't anything wrong with those who have traumatic histories. There isn't anything wrong if they have post-traumatic stress disorder, but it's what happened to them. And our brains are doing what they're supposed to do to keep us safe. Sometimes it just requires that, uh, as we'll talk about in the treatment section, um, it requires some work because those neural connections in our brain are really, really strong. And so we just have to do a little bit of kind of undoing that. So that way someone's responding more to what's in the present as opposed to what's in the past. And Jean, that is such a good point. I, um, I never thought of that, <laughs> but the bed is a trigger. Oh wait, that's so true. That could absolutely be another, uh, another element of this, that just the, that simple, object is a really significant trigger and it might represent to her uh like for me i think like i'm i'm privileged i live in a safe apartment and i have a warm and cozy bed and for me a bed equals safety um that doesn't that's not the same for everybody for natasha that bed equals a vulnerability or a place where you're unconscious and you don't know what's happening around you okay um, those examples are really helpful. Um, I'm sorry, we don't have more time to go through more of them and discuss them in depth with you all. Um, but yeah, feel free to take those and use them with your teams. If you're a supervisor or just like to share learning materials. Um, why don't we just go to the next slide? So we're going to talk about being trauma informed now. We've talked about what, what happens with, uh, on the continuum of experiences that might be stressful to ones that are traumatic, defined trauma, uh, what happens in the brain, um, the impact of it, and now what do we do as providers? So I really love this uh, visual, um, let's see what to call it, a visual analogy that David's created. We have a little house here, um, a haven, and so we're going to use this over the next few slides to talk about these really core components of being trauma-informed. So haven, and David, maybe you could speak to why you chose the word haven instead of house or whatever, but it looks like the definition is really fitting. It's a place of safety, a refuge, a place offering favorable opportunities or conditions. Yeah, I, you know, I'm, no one's ever asked me that, and I'm glad you did. You made me think for a quick second, and I, I think a, a good reason, one of the reasons why is that a lot of people that we work with um, don't actually have homes, and yeah. so it could be a little bit, uh, a little bit triggering to use that word. Um, obviously, the visual is still there, so maybe that defeats the purpose, but also sometimes homes uh, represent um, 
it could represent vulnerability or where something bad happened, but a haven, haven is a very specific and that's a place of safety. So I, I think that second definition is super important um, to kind of embrace as we go through this analogy. Yeah, thank you. Um, so yeah, we're going to talk about what's, what's really critical. Um, we're going to talk about relationships and what, are, what, what does a relationship need to be built on? It needs to be built on safety, trust, uh, affirming choice, offering opportunities for choice, and then considerations around triggers again, and education, psychoeducation, and how to create a container and what that is. So building trust. I think, uh, I think we all know what this sort of entails, right? Building trust means spending time with someone, really connecting with them on their level, going at their pace, offering lots of opportunities for them to uh, share their preferences and have those respected. Um, building trust also has a lot to do with being consistent. So being transparent with what's going on with your actions, your thoughts, your feelings, to the extent that you're able to, right? Using maybe self-disclosure when it's appropriate, um, to the extent that it's helpful, um, but always being consistent, sort of following through on what we say we're going to do, um, creating boundaries, both emotional and physical, so respecting the physical boundaries that some, someone prefers, offering opportunities for them to share what those preferred boundaries are, and then emotional boundaries are sort of this, the interpersonal boundaries that need to develop in the, the therapeutic relationship, um, finding ways to elucidate those and getting, again, your client's preference for them, and then really following through and being kind of overt about that. That sort of, that's also going to help with modeling for someone who may have experienced their boundaries being crossed uh, physically or emotionally in the past. That's going to model that this is something they can do in their own lives and it's going to make it so they can trust you ongoing and be open with you. Okay, let's move to the next slide. All right, so now we're talking about choice. Um, and similarly, this is, these things are kind of interrelated, right? Not terribly complex concepts, but one of the things that we can really do, and it's sort of a, a subtle and simple thing, but we can create opportunities to uh, elicit clients' choices. And um, that could happen through just offering options, when even if there's maybe, maybe it's something really simple, um, but making sure that it's, it's, if you're gonna go grab coffee with them, making sure that they have choice over whether you're gonna sit outside or inside and what they'd like to drink and who would like to order first, many little things like that. And then also, of course, choice within their care is huge. We have some content and some resources on supported and shared decision-making uh, that we could refer you to if you have any interest in that. Um, but we really wanna avoid for people, especially people who've experienced trauma, that being paternalistic and telling people what they should do or what they need to do, that's unhelpful. That takes away client choice. And this is having choice, uh, sort of being empowered to make decisions is a skill. And so this is some skill building you're doing with a person as well. All right, safety. So safety could be sort of like physical safety, um, but we really mean here sort of emotional safety um, more so. So even the physical touch piece is sort of emotional in a way, right? Um, so we want to ask for permission before we, you know, put a hand on someone's back, maybe check in with their preferences on that first. Not everyone likes to shake hands. Um, these are little things to just look out for and ask permission of like, oh, would you like to shake hands? Are you comfortable with shaking hands? Um, and then, of course, creating safety in terms of where maybe it's physical context of where someone's meeting, um, what, the, what the sort of 
seating arrangement looks like, the ordering if you're inside or outside. Um, and then safety also has to do with making sure someone feels uh, sort of safe within the conversational content that they're sharing, making sure there's space for that. Um, safety might be if you're working with someone, I mean, quite literally, who's in the midst of trauma, if they don't have a private space to speak within, um, let's say they are in a home that's experiencing domestic violence, uh, those are some pretty concrete issues that need to be attended to around safety to make sure that further risk, someone's not worrying about further risk while they're conversing with you. Okay. Let's go to triggers. So as David mentioned earlier, um, Regina is a good example to think back to. Um, what might be some potential triggers for Regina? So the coffee could be one, um, but if you're working with Regina, let's say you, let's say you were uh, wanting to transport her somewhere. What, how might you address the fact that riding in a car could be a potential trigger and how that might impact the work you're gonna do? If you had to ride in a car somewhere, maybe what you would do to sort of help her manage her feelings, manage her emotions, her distress levels would be slightly different. Maybe you would focus on some other topics than doing something really deep and therapeutic that day or going into another really stressful activity immediately. Um, you might think about that. Any other sort of, any other examples of this come to mind for anyone? Um, managing triggers, things you look out for? David, your last uh, example, um, when you were just speaking before, when you, you didn't know initially uh, what was going on, you hadn't made that connection for the individual you were working with, uh, with the bed situation. Um, and that makes perfect sense. It takes a long time sometimes to build, to understand enough, to learn enough about what someone's experienced to really put that together. Um, those insights come to us as providers and to clients at varying points in time, and it's not going to be an immediate thing. So we won't always know. Um, and this, that curiosity without being prying, without, you know, uh, disrespecting people's boundaries or their choice to share what they want to share, it's really critical that we find a way to get that information when it's appropriate, but kind of look out for it, you know, really, really think critically and creatively. So if anyone has any examples of that, feel free to throw them up. And then education. So this could be psychoeducation, education, a little bit of like just reminding folks that giving them a little context for what they are experiencing and how their prior experiences might be impacting them, how the past might be present, as David was saying. Um, so normalizing reactions to trauma and reinforcing safety and trust, um, talking with individuals about how trauma impacts their thinking. So you can share some information. And again, if they're, if they're willing, if, if they are interested in that, if they've given permission, um, and share information not to the point of being preachy or pathologizing, but to the point of trying to help them maybe have a different sort of mental frame around the things they're experiencing, and most importantly, to normalize and reduce that sort of something's wrong with me, um, maybe some internalized stigma they've experienced. All right, let's talk about containers or containment. Um, so what does this mean? What does containment mean? It sounds like a bad word for our context, doesn't it? Um, it's kind of tough to describe, right? It's kind of this, like, it go, It reminds me of, like, a blend of creating safety, not just the physical safety. Maybe safety refers to physical, and containment is sort of that, the emotional safety. It's, it's our way of, as providers, kind of 
walking a little bit of a, a into the gray area of trying to help make sure that if someone is talking about their trauma and let's let's step outside of the realm of trauma treatment let's talk about not doing trauma treatment but someone might be bringing up their trauma really thinking about context and what someone's uh, reactions to talking about that maybe or what you know them to be and helping guide the space like time wise or wherever you are um, to be somewhere that or be created in a way that kind of can contain and allow for some degree of uh, processing of any uh, distress that arises from talking about the trauma. So, you know, maybe it's just gently suggesting that, you know, you make sure there's enough time if someone wants to tell a story of something that happened to them. Like if you know you've got to go get on a call and, you know, it's a, you can't have the time needed to attend to someone's sharing of a traumatic story, you might want to let them know that before they get into the story. And as we know, when people are talking about these things, David was mentioning, you know, there's dissociation that can occur, and we really want to make sure we're not leaving people in a distressed state whenever possible, especially if they're sharing their really private history with us or really sensitive history with us. Um, right, so thinking about time and space, and um, in terms of, you know, trauma treatment, I think that's much more structured, and David will chat about the types of treatment um, and sort of the, the intervention components that are within and some of those same thing you know we're trying to really if people are going to get to a point of sort of distress we want to not leave them there we want to help them ground back into a less distressed place okay and it's also similarly important to not come across like you're silencing someone and that's why it's a little bit of a, a sort of vague undefined really varies from person to person it's it's also super important to like say, oh, I don't know, I, I really want to hear what you have to say, I really want to understand what you've been through, I am not sure I have enough time to really attend to that today, or whatever, possibly better wording than what I just used, but at the same time, we don't want to silence someone, we don't want to be like, oh, you shouldn't talk about that right now, um, this isn't the time or place, you know, we want to be aware of the fact that people might be sharing things for the first time, or maybe the umpteenth time, um, all the same. All right, so talking about trauma, um, this is just an overview of what we've basically already discussed. Uh, we wanna find a way to be aware of the specific traumas that people have experienced and cognizant of the stress responses related to that that could come up. Um, discussion has gotta go at the speed of the individual. We can't set an agenda for learning about someone's trauma or trauma treatment for that matter. Uh, we need to just ask, we need to ask about, hey, how are you feeling right now? How, you know, are what's, in trauma treatment, we talk about suds. What is? What are your uh, stress levels? Um, are you checked in right now? Are you checked out? Are you kind of here right now or are you not? Finding if people have gone to a place of dissociation, just checking in with them if their heart's racing, if they're feeling anxious or if they're feeling uh, nothing at all. Those are important things to look for. Um, learning their sort of interpersonal dynamics, those signs that can come up if they're going into one of those states. Um, and being able to look out for that and finding shared language that feels comfortable for, to them to check in on it. Um, details are not important. We just, we don't need to know everything. I know the curiosity might be there. Um, and just as it's so important to understand what someone's experienced and how it can impact their wellness currently, we don't need to know every detail. Um, so being careful not to pry or be curious past what is truly helpful to the individual we're serving. Um, 
And then uh, we can't question the validity of a traumatic experience. And I really don't think, I'm betting no one in this training has kind of found themselves in that boat. I'd like to think that's sort of an antiquated um, uh, sort of perspective on trauma. Um, if people tell you an experience that they've had, let's say even people who experience psychotic symptoms, it's still important to not question uh, whether something is maybe a delusion or a real traumatic experience, because what they're sharing is what they're sharing, and we need to just work with that at face value. Okay. Yeah, and, um, uh, did, yeah I don't know if you're about to comment on E's comment, but it's... Uh, I, I was just about to read. Yeah, I was going to pull yeah. that up. So uh, she's referring to like talk of consolidating mental health facilities at the hospital. And if somebody has a negative association with inpatient services and they have to go to the same place for outpatient services, would that be potentially triggering? And um, certainly it could absolutely be a potential trigger. It just depends on, uh, on how that experience was for them when they were in the hospital. Um, right. and, and I guess another... Another point that I think is, is really important is to recognize is that there is a good, it, it's sometimes impossible to avoid triggers in life. And, and, and through treatment, we don't always want to avoid triggers because that limits who we are as a person. It limits where we can go, what we can do. Um, but uh, so, yeah, so in some ways it, it, it's okay. Like we, we may make a mistake when we're working with somebody and accidentally trigger them. Um, and that's okay as long as, we, as long as we acknowledge it and provide the space to process that, um, if that's appropriate, um, and to apologize and, and, and change how we behave or talk or respond. Um, and so for somebody, if this were to happen and somebody didn't want to go to the facility because it was so triggering because it reminds them of when they were there for an inpatient, I would imagine someone would need just a whole lot of support and um, need to develop a trusting relationship with somebody so that they know they maybe they could go with that person to the hospital for that appointment um, so they could be reassured that they're safe. Um, but it's a really great example, Eve, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. And, and again, it just reveals that, yeah, there are triggers that we're not going to be able to avoid, and sometimes we do it accidentally, and that's all okay. It's what's important is how we respond to that. Yeah, wonderful point. It really makes me think of um, some of the forms of the sort of like set of circumstances that we talked about yesterday that are really overarching, um, and let's say for some people that are just, they've only, they have been maybe part of an oppressed group, you know, what it's like to enter into some institutions looking for help, already knowing that it's not going to be a supportive place. And so part of having a trauma-informed lens is looking for those, you know, these sort of like acute or specific traumatic events that may have impacted someone, maybe someone was in a hospital, like you're saying, and had a negative experience, and that's really going to deter them from wanting to go anywhere near that context again, to different situations where maybe someone does not trust the police. Um, and they, if they were assaulted, they want nothing to do with going to the police. Um, that's another thing that we can, all we can do is try and offer validation for that, for that uh, emotional response and try and support as best possible. I think another uh, instance in which this comes up during assessments, they're kind of like, oh, you know, you know, some, you're working with some people and you don't want to have to ask them certain questions. And maybe you have to, because of 
uh, work requirements. Um, finding ways to really frame that, offer warning, not just diving into really personal questions. Um, and as David's saying, make, leaving space for it to process that. Okay, let's go into some examples of non-trauma-informed and trauma-informed language. Um, and I'll try, let's see, I'll try to, if anyone sees things wrong, feel free to throw them up in the chat. Um, some of these won't be so clear as to what is maybe wrong until we see sort of the comparison to a, a maybe more trauma-informed response. And some of them you might not agree with. So throw your, tear them apart, throw your criticisms up, um, uh, we'll talk them through. So then in this first example, we've got Nadine, you can't keep doing this, crack is going to kill you, just stop. Right, what, what's wrong with this picture? Um, so we've got... But I, this is me. Let's just say it's me. Um, I'm only focusing on the harms and the negatives related to her use. I'm not thinking about what crack might do that's uh, pr protective or supportive to Nadine. And I'm telling her to stop. So I'm using directive and really disempowering commands, honestly. Um, let's go to the next slide. So a more trauma-informed way of communicating around this topic might be Nadine, do you mind if I share a concern with you? I'm worried about the impact crack smoking might be having on your health. Would you be okay if we talked about this habit? So that's David, who's really trauma-informed, saying that. And that's, is this better? Does this, does this make sense? So we're asking for permission, um, or David's asking for permission. Uh, he's expressing concern. Um, he's not telling her, you know, that something is, something bad is happening to her. And he's asking permission again. And he's using some really like destigmatized language, um, like calling it a habit um, and impact, things like that. Um, and what would we do if she said no after the first question? So what would, what would David do if Nadine, do you mind if I share a concern with you? And she was like, no, I mean, I do mind. Sorry. How about she says yes? He does mind. She doesn't want to hear David's concerns at all. So David has to go, okay, all right. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for letting me know. And then maybe talk about something different and reassess, um, you know, think about is there another, what does he need to do? Is it the way he framed that question? Is it maybe she doesn't, you know, like the word concern being used? Maybe that doesn't feel good for her. Um, get to know her a little better. Find other ways to ask permission in a way that feels good for her. And she may never want to talk about her drug use, and that is okay. Um, these are sort of the realities of the work we do, and being trauma-informed really highlights uh, the importance of that. It's a great follow-up question, Elizabeth. I appreciate that, and I just think about like if we were to continue to say no I want to talk about your crack use mm -hmm. like that's now like obviously I have an agenda as a provider right. um, disregarding her and, and until I've right. been in um, Nadine's shoes and experienced her life I, I don't think I have right. the right to say you need to stop using crack because that the, the crack may be keeping her safe from mm. really terrible emotions and thoughts and right. um, so Right. And so maybe if David spends some time talking about not her use, but just crack and what she thinks about it at some point, they just have a, a, a open conversation. Um, maybe that's a way to get in there so she can start to trust that David's not just there to take that away from her. Okay. So uh, this is back to me. Hi, I'm Jean. You've been assigned as my client. I'm looking forward to getting to know you. 
seems nice. <laughs> what can I, I think it seems nice. Fine with me. How can All I right. not be trauma informed? <laughs> <laughs> so what could be better here? Let's use David's version. Hi, do you mind if I introduce myself asking for permission? My name is Jean and I am a case manager identifying myself. If you agree, I would love to work with you. So still expressing excitement, interest, and wanting to know this person, uh, but really reminding them that they have choice. And there might be instances where someone doesn't have so much choice. I'm thinking of conservatorship, uh, instances of holds or incarceration. There's still ways to offer choice and um, opportunity for someone to express preference. And we really want to always highlight those wherever we can. Yeah. Um, okay. Great. Yeah. And if I could add one thing to that, yeah. I, uh, you know, I don't know how often this could be triggering for somebody and maybe I'm, you know, overdoing it, but, um, you know, like this original statement, you've been assigned as my client, that, that communicates some sort of ownership. And, and I think everyone knows that doesn't mean your own, but I, I feel a little, sometimes a little uncomfortable with that to say, oh, you're my client. Well, you're, you're not, you're not mine. I, I'm here to work with you, with you, but you know, that, <laughs> um, and again, I might be overthinking that, but for whatever reason, that tends to just uh, right. not always sit well with me and I try to adjust my language. Oh, very good point. Thank you. Okay. On to the next. Um, so it's me again. You must be scared to go back on the streets. I totally understand. Let's discuss a plan to keep you safe. Right. So, one piece of information we don't have here is if I totally understand or not. Have I, have I lived on the streets? I might totally understand. Probably still not, though, because we can empathize and we can try and understand people's experiences, but we are all so different, and we can never say we totally understand anything, right? Um, let's discuss a plan to keep you safe. Seemingly okay, but let's do it in a more trauma-informed way. All right, so David then says, how are you feeling about having to go back out on the streets? I can't imagine what that is like for you. I've lived on the streets before too, and I was often afraid. Would it be helpful if we discussed how to stay safe? So there, again, lots of asking permission and curiosity of how are you feeling, not just assuming what, what someone might be feeling. And, you know, some, sometimes when we reflect people's emotions, if we know them really well, we can venture a guess, right? That's sort of a, I think if that is like a, a strong MI skill, uh, you can just sort of deduce that someone might be feeling scared um, from a number of pieces of information. But if we don't really know that, we need to just ask how someone's feeling. And generally, that's going to feel, you know, good and validating as well. And in this situation, I, it looks like I had lived on the streets before, too, or David had, and had experienced fear. Um, what we can't do is ever make things up to say, hey, I relate. Um, so if I haven't, I mean, this is pretty obvious. If neither of us have, we can't say that, just to um, offer that sort of Hey, I really hear you. Okay, so I see some comments. Uh, Maribel, you said, what if you say I have been assigned to you? Um, yeah, you could say it. I've, I remember <laughs> sometime years ago saying something along those lines and someone was like, oh, you're assigned to me, so your boss is making me work with you. And I was like, oh, no, oh, no, 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 I want to work with you. I, I do. I, I, you weren't, you're no burden to me. Like, oh, what have, what have I done? Um, Gosh, and you can't know that, especially when you're just meeting people. But, right, I guess we, we trial and error it out, and then we, we take ownership and accountability and are just human and vulnerable when we, when we make goofs uh, upon meeting people. Um, 
so I don't know. That's up to you to think on if you want to use that or not. Um, all right. I love this language reframe to asking permission, but I'm wondering how we can still use these ideas in instances where we need to enforce a hard boundary, like a client sexually harassing someone in the environment, for example. Um, right. Uh, I think there's still room. Oh, gosh. So if you're addressing, let's say that you're not in the moment of observing someone sexually harassing someone, let's say you're talking to them about it after the fact. Um, you would still want to use, you would still want to ask permission to talk to them or, or frame things in a way of warning, like, I, I have to talk to you about a thing um, and offering choice and options wherever possible. Like, would you like to come to my office? Should I come meet you at uh, appointment or come to your home? You know, still creating instances where there's more choice and there's respect because someone is, does not deserve less respect and autonomy necessarily. Uh, just because they've been doing something that is not very good to other people. They've been harming other people. Um, and we work with many people who have caused harm to other people or are doing that. So still coming from with respect and with concern and curiosity, questioning what their experience might be, asking how they're, how they're doing, what's going on for them. Um, I think, I think there's still small ways to do that. Um, we just, we never want to take on the role of, of uh, disempowering people um, who, even if it were do they're doing something we don't agree with or that isn't that is categorically not good. Okay. Really great questions, and it's like yeah. there are still choices, and each of those choices comes with a set of uh, of consequences. And so being able to, and I think we'll talk about this a little bit later as well. Yeah. Um, and I did just want to highlight one other thing that uh, Stephanie had said, and particularly about permission asking and um, like it's hard, but exactly right. Like we, we want to honor the individual mm -hmm. and that they do have, have choice. And also, and I know we've talked a lot about this in some other trainings that we've done, Elizabeth, of mm -hmm. all the clients. And right. I, I know there's a variety of terms out there and, you know, really it, it sometimes is helpful to just ask like how, how do you want to be referred? I mean, I think you, you used mm -hmm. to talk about this, Elizabeth, of, you know, if you're on a phone call with another professional and that person you're working with is also in the room, maybe saying before, like, hey, I'm going to call your doctor. Is it okay if I say I'm working with the client or do you prefer if I just say, hey, I'm working with, with David? Uh, you know, like, giving them some choices to recognize that we respect what, how they feel about different titles and terms. Yeah, absolutely. This is the one instance sometimes where, you know, asking people, how do they, how do they want to be referred to? Because sometimes you, you might be on the phone with a provider scheduling an appointment. Do they want to be, hi, I'm calling to make an appointment for my client? And this is the one other instance in which, you know, you might say, you might use a, a, a label, a term, um, a kind of a, a role label that really doesn't sit well with them. So trying to ask where we can or just avoiding that when we can. Um, all right, I'm going to skip over this one, go to the last one, just in the interest of time. Um, all right, how about you really shouldn't be having sex with other homeless people? I think we, we all know this is just not good. We're being directive, um, judgmental uh, in multiple ways. Um, so a more trauma-informed way of saying, um, not even re reframing really that one, but just talking about this might be sex is an important part of life for many people and nothing to be embarrassed about. Is it okay if we talk about how to be safe? So 
trying to uh, sort of affirm the this the thing that um, there, there can often be a lot of uh, shame or embarrassment around um, that it's that it is a healthy and normal part of life and that it's safe to talk about in this context and to ask permission again. So I'm going to kind of move quickly here. The last uh, slide here with these beautiful colorful bubbles, uh, it's just a summary. So these are the things we can do. We can listen with intent and curiosity. We can offer options. We can focus on safety, choice, acceptance, and empowerment. And when talking with someone, stop everything else that you're doing or be transparent about your multitasking. Give full attention or explain why you're not. Avoid saying you can't, you should, and you need. So no no paternalism, no, no directing, no advising um, without permission. All right, so trauma-informed consequences. Oh God, David, I can't remember what the cat thing means now, but <laughs> so what this refers to, just trauma-informed consequences. This is this nice sort of uh, uh, concept that applies for instances where there might be rules. So consequences, we aren't really the, the we don't dole out consequences for the most part in uh, like therapeutic context, but maybe someone's in housing that has rules or some other like context, like the shelter um, that has rules and they might receive consequences. I'm thinking of like methadone programs too. You kind of receive consequences if you don't follow their rules. Um, these might apply also, I guess in some therapeutic context, if someone's acting inappropriately at the clinic uh, or in an office, that might be a context. But we wanna think about um, really making sure there's clarity around understanding the reason for the behavior instead of focusing on just punishment. Um, we wanna think about consequences that take the trauma someone may have experienced into consideration, offer opportunities for learning and still maintain safety. So it's just, you know, if consequences are, are necessary, thinking them through and thinking about the most uh, supportive way to deliver them, um, or if people are experiencing them from an outside entity, trying to mitigate the, the harms potentially from, from that. Um, being strength-based and reinforcing autonomy still and not using unenforceable rules. And I don't know if you wanna explain the cat, David. You know, I, I think this is a great demonstration of how sometimes when I'm developing trainings, I go down rabbit holes. And so here, here's one of those examples. There was a reason for it, but considering I'm under pressure and my executive function might be slightly diminished, mm. I'm just going to avoid it. I hope everyone enjoys the picture. And for those of you who have cats who do this, um, a little giggle. Um, <laughs> It, what bring, what comes up for me is just like, well, just basic like conditioning principles of you have to connect to the consequence to the behavior. Um, and the cat knocks something up and they run out of the room, they'll forget that they knocked that thing over after three seconds. And so if you skirt with them with the, them with a water gun, it won't help anything. It'll just traumatize them. That's kind of the only thing I can come up with there because that's <laughs> what I read apparently because my cat does this every morning to wake me up to get food. All right, so just going to touch on uh, a little bit of a different topic real quick, and then we're going to go to a break. Um, so person-centered meets trauma-informed. We've talked through uh, one sort of interpretation of the development of PTSD or trauma's impact on the brain and body, and sort of this like neurological uh, understanding that the brain is plastic, um, that it changes when trauma occurs, um, and it can change in a different way through treatment. Um, that's an important way, one, one important way to understand uh, trauma's impact on people. 
But I think there are a couple of other things, ways to sort of look at this that can uh, really also fall under this like kind of person-centered, recovery-oriented, supportive bucket. Um, we can also think of them, why don't we just go to the next slide real quick. Depathologizing or pathologizing PTSD. Um, we, we don't really, most certainly we don't want to take away from the severity of someone's experience. Uh, if they have full-blown PTSD, if they meet that criteria, whatever, um, then they are diagnosed with what is then a mental illness. And I think it's important that we think through the impact of the potential, potential stigma that that carries for an individual when they receive that information. of like, oh, they've been assessed after a traumatic experience and it becomes clear that they've developed PTSD and now they need to receive treatment for that. Um, so some this is a, a guy that's working on a, a treatment that I don't really know much about this treatment, but he has a nice framing of like, maybe we should call this mental injury. You know, it needs to be regarded as something serious, but what would it be like if we called it mental injury instead of mental illness in this context? Because again, the responses, the symptoms of PTSD were adaptive. Um, these are things that come up to, to help someone cope with the impacts of trauma, and then they become maladaptive when they cause more distress in someone's life than they were initially set out to produce. Um, so this is a, a benefit to viewing it this way, is that it shrinks space and it normalizes, you know, the reactions to trauma, and it's destigmatizing. Next slide. And another argument for, um, or not argument for, but a, a sort of another angle on understanding PTSD and treating it as a mental illness and having it be something that an individual goes into uh, a therapy office and receives treatment, that that might take off the focus from sort of the, the causes of trauma. Think about this a lot within like interpersonal violence. Um, you know, if someone's just going into an office for treatment, What's going on with the community in which this, uh, perhaps the violence is cyclical or uh, multi-generational? What's going on with addressing the perpetrator? Um, so part of doing PTSD treatment, it has an effect of not having a great lens towards sort of the, the imperative for a social justice approach of having community interventions in tandem. Um, and thinking about sort of the social factors, all the things that really feed into why someone might experience trauma instead of stress and PTSD instead of maybe just an acute, acute stress reaction. All right, so I hope that makes sense. Just, just a couple of different lenses to try on and how we can make sense of uh, trauma and PTSD and working with folks and maybe take away a little bit of the stigma out of it where we can and um, provide hope where we can. So now we are going to talk about the actual treatment of trauma. So I want to at least mention before we get into this that this training really isn't intended to provide a, a, a really broad overview of, or it's intended to provide a broad overview of treatment, not necessarily provide a training on how to provide treatment of trauma. Um, so I just kind of want to put that out there and depending on what type of work setting you're in and uh, what your relationship with the people you serve is, you may not have the ability to actually provide treatment of trauma, um, but we'll, and, and we'll talk about why as we, as we go through this. So, um, 
So let's start with the good old DSM. And so the DSM-5 has a few different diagnoses that, have, that are related to trauma and or stress. So there's actually a section, um, and this is new with the DSM-5, so back in 2013 when this came out, um, they kind of reordered things a bit and they add this section that's called trauma and stressor-related disorders. And excuse me, I listed all the different disorders that are in this section, and I highlighted the ones that are probably most relevant to our conversations today. So we have re reactive attachment disorder, disinhibited social engagement disorder, um, and adjustment disorder. So those ones, um, again, not we're not going to spend uh, we're not going to spend any time actually talking about those. But now we have acute stress disorder, and we have post-traumatic stress disorder. So these two diagnoses are actually, uh, they, they have a lot of commonalities. One of the biggest differences is that in acute stress disorder, um, symptoms last from maybe three days to a month. And then when symptoms last longer than a month, then you're looking at what could be a post-traumatic stress disorder. And, uh, and again, the, there, is some, there are some differences in the symptoms between acute stress disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, but it's for today's conversation, I'm sorry, I'm talking to the side. I just want to get my notes up here uh, and make sure are good. Um, uh, but for today's conversation, we're, we're going to focus on the symptoms of, of post-traumatic stress disorder, or you could also refer to this as PTSD, as I'm sure many of you have, have heard that. So let's go to our next slide here. So here is a really general overview of some of the symptoms that are required in order for a diagnosis of PTSD to be made. So there has to be an exposure to a traumatic event. Uh, and uh, Elizabeth uh, talked a lot about what a traumatic event uh, looks like on um, Wednesday. And there has to be the presence of intrusive symptoms. So intrusive symptoms can be a variety of things. They can be flashbacks where you unexpectedly um, feel like you're reliving the experience, that traumatic experience. Maybe uh, you, you come into the presence of a trigger and that trigger causes you, uh, causes those uh, dissociated memories to come into the present and with a real intensity. Um, or it could be uh, it could be nightmares um, that are that are uh, that you're experiencing, or it could be intrusive thinking, like you just can't stop thinking about this traumatic event. And then there's persistence of uh, excuse me, persistent avoidance is a is the next sort of category of symptoms that are required for a PTSD diagnosis. And we talked about how avoidance is actually a really important coping mechanism. But now we're looking at it from the frame of okay, now it's starting to be a little bit maladaptive. It's preventing somebody from living the life that they really want to live. Um, and now there's the next section here is a negative, uh, negative alterations in cognitions and mood associated with the traumatic event. So in other words, they might be feeling fear and depression or their thought process might be very negative as it relates to that traumatic experience. And then marked alterations in arousal and reactivity associated with the traumatic event. And that refers to this hyperarousal um, hyper that we had talked about before, hypervigilance, and also that uh, heightened startle response. Those things are also required to be part of this PTSD um, diagnosis. 
Now, I don't like to spend too much time, clearly, because I, I didn't, um, I don't like to spend too much time on the actual diagnosis because I, I think it's really important uh, to, it, it's basically a continuation of what Elizabeth was talking about of, you know, do we, it, it is important, uh, there is a necessity uh, for pathologizing sometimes, um, being able to have a diagnosis to help contain this set of symptoms can be important for research. It can be important for maybe the individual. So they, they don't feel like they're crazy or that they're the only person like, no, this is the thing. This is an actual mental health disorder that people experience. And sometimes seeing that diagnosis can actually be validating, not for everybody. Uh, for some people, that's really helpful. For other people, it could be even more disempowering. So, um, it, so PTSD, that diagnosis, again, important, but I don't like to focus a whole lot on it. And so when looking at treatment for trauma, here are some things that are also important to keep in mind. That not everybody, I'm going to skip the first one. So first, not everybody who experiences a traumatic event um, that doesn't mean you're going to develop a post-traumatic stress disorder or even an acute stress disorder, or even an adjustment disorder. Like we talked about on Wednesday, there are so many different factors that contribute to how somebody perceives an event that happens to them. And a lot of those same factors uh, fall in line with, uh, with, with how that trauma manifests with that individual. So some people can experience things that are highly traumatic, yet not actually develop any sort of post-traumatic stress disorder. They might have a few symptoms of, uh, that fall in line with the diagnosis, but they're not meeting the full criteria. And then also, a long, a, a kind of in that same, uh, same thought, not everybody who, ex who experiences trauma needs treatment. A lot of people experience things that, are, that, are, uh, that induce fear and anxiety, but they might be able to process through those experiences on their own or maybe with the help of family or friends. Um, maybe they have really great coping mechanisms. Maybe they use journaling and meditation. Um, and they're able to work through it without having to seek professional help. Um, but when somebody does uh, feel that they need treatment for the trauma that they've experienced, um, it should not begin until that person is in a safe place and that they feel relatively safe. I put relatively because sometimes when somebody has experienced trauma, they, they may never, uh, prior to treatment, they never, they may never feel truly safe. Again, very individualized, but are they relatively safe? And do they want to work through their trauma? So going back to asking permission, um, it's similar to that. Like they have a choice in this. They have control over this. I actually just started working with, uh, with an individual in, in private practice. And, um, and I only say that just to recognize that there are very big differences of somebody who comes to a private practice versus somebody who goes through an FSP team. However, uh, this individual reported to me that he's experienced trauma in his life. And, uh, and so it was really important to me to make sure, like, is this something you want to work on? And if it's something you want to work on, 
you let me know when you're ready because I am not going to push this until you tell me that this is something that it's okay for us to talk about. And interestingly, he, he did share with me uh, recently at the end of our session that he would like to start talking about it. And I said, okay, well, maybe our next session, we can begin that conversation. But before we do that, I'm going to check in with you at the beginning of session to make sure you are feeling, you are still feeling okay about that. Um, is it, it, we do not want to force um, treatment for trauma because it could be even more damaging um, if we do that. So can't emphasize how important that is. So there are, and I'm sure many of you are aware that there are many different uh, specific models for treating post-traumatic stress disorder. One of the ones that pops up in my mind most frequently is EMDR or eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Um, that's a very specific treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. There's also narrative therapies. There are exposure therapies. Um, there are frameworks within a cognitive behavioral therapy structure. Um, and it, Again, there's, there's a variety of them. And it, it's not helpful necessarily to go through all of those different structures, but there's actually, um, there have been a, a few studies and the one that I really like and I think is really helpful is the one that's referenced at the bottom of the screen where the authors, they actually looked at all of these different treatment studies and they were able to pull out these four important phases of each of the, those different treatment models. And even uh, with those specific treatment models, when we go back and look at that book that I had talked about on Wednesday, Trauma and Recovery from Judith Herman, um, her model for providing treatment to trauma also follows these same sort of phases. And, you know, Oftentimes when uh, Elizabeth and I talk about uh, treatment approaches, you know, we, we just did a recovery-oriented care, and we talked about how the phases, they often, they, they could be in different, uh, they're not always linear. With uh, trauma treatment, there actually is a little bit of ordering that's necessary to do that. And so these four phases is a, a trusting relationship. Like, absolutely, that has to be the first thing that takes place. And, and we'll go into more depth with each of these. Um, but without a trusting relationship, it's, it's going to be hard to move forward. I'm not saying it can't be done, but I, I, it, it's really hard for me to imagine that treatment will be as effective as it could be if there's not that strong relationship. And then there's self-regulation. So we've developed a good trusting relationship and all of those things Elizabeth talked about, about being trauma-informed and creating that haven, that's, those all really feed into that trusting relationship. And once that's there, then it might be time to start teaching and modeling some new skills that will help that individual uh, self-regulate. And once those self-regulation skills are, are there, uh, it might be an okay time to start the actual processing of the experience that they've had. And that, that could include exposure, that could include narrative, and again, we'll go into more detail. And then kind of the last stage after the processing has happened is cognitive restructuring. And that's where we try to, uh, uh, not that it's not that simple, but like kind of re- wire some of those neural pathways that were associating fear with things that don't necessarily equate to fear in the present context. So let's go ahead and, and, and start with this trusting relationship. I don't 
I actually don't have too much to say it, it, just because it's it, it's so important. <laughs> um, it's integral to working with people who have experienced trauma. It takes a lot of time to do. Not, not all the time. I shouldn't make that as a, a generalization. But the, the woman that I was talking about um, earlier who, who had lived in an apartment uh, project and, uh, and she was raped at a young age, it took her a year and a half to disclose that to me. And, um, and that's because it took us a very long time to really develop that trusting relationship. And I think the trust was there early on, but it wasn't enough for her to be able to share that experience with someone because she had never ex uh, shared that experience with anybody before. So again, that relationship is, is so, so important. That's the context where healing is actually going to take place. And safety is paramount. So again, we talked about this physical and emotional safety, and both of those are very, very uh, uh, crucial for this. So they need that sense of emotional safety. They need to know that if I was their provider, that when they share something with me, that I'm not going to think, oh, wow, you're, you're a bad person, or I can't believe you allowed that to happen to you, um, or wow, that's gross or some other terrible judgment that of course I would never uh, never place on somebody that I'm working with but I could tell somebody that at the beginning of treatment that you know what no matter what you tell me I, I want you to know that I'm not going to judge you based on those things and I'm here to be trusted. They need to see that. They need to have evidence. There needs to be a demonstration that I am a trusting person. And again, that takes time. So we need to have a lot of patience during this part. And also during the trusting relationship phase, it's not that that's all you're doing. It's not that you're just um, learning about each other and learning how to trust and develop a relationship, which, which is a lot. But you could also be providing psychoeducation during this phase. You could even begin introducing some of those concepts that we talked about um, or that I said I would talk about, which I'm going to. Um, the uh, uh, sort of the coping mechanisms to deal with some of the emotions that may arise when we do begin talking about the traumatic events that might have taken place. And so the, the word that escaped my mind just now is now back in my head. So we have to teach people those self-regulation tools. And all of us should have a toolbox, a, a figurative one, not a literal one, of ways that we can calm ourselves down. And not only do we need to have a whole bunch of these different mechanisms, we need to be able to model how they're used, and we need to be able to appropriately teach those to the person that we're serving. And so teaching them to the person is one thing, but then being able to see us use them. So maybe we'll do them together, um, or maybe, and this is something you can do, and I really loved how this trainer that I had participated in a few months ago had did this, but he simply in the middle of training said, you know what, hold on one second, I'm just feeling a little anxious, I just need to regroup. Ah. Great, that feels a little bit better. And so I just modeled a very quick, easy self-regulation technique. That was me taking a deep breath, me letting that breath out with a sigh, putting my hands on the table, which you can't see, but here they are, and I put them flat on the table, and I was able to just ground myself for a few seconds. 
And so, yeah, it, it's a really quick one, and there are ones that aren't so quick. And a, a tool that I often use, um, which I just think is such a great tool, and if you've been on our trainings before, you've probably heard me or our colleague, Gene, talk about this, but it's that this um, grounding technique called 5-4-3-2-1. And the way I do it is I sit, uh, when I'm with somebody, I'm like, let's, let's talk about a method for how we can just kind of ground ourselves and be in the present moment. Can you tell me five things right now that you are seeing in this room? And, and I usually do it with that individual um, so they could understand, because I don't want them to say, well, I, I see you, I see a computer, I see a picture on the wall. Like those are all good things, but I might say, oh, I see a blue pen that has like a really nice shine to it um, and that's reflecting the light from the window behind me. I could see origami that I have on my desk. I do origami, so in case you're wondering, it's something that I do to de-stress, which is another self-regulation tool. <laughs> okay, I, I know you're all dying to see this. Okay, so here's my little origami star that I made. Um, but anyways, I am seeing that. I'm seeing that it's m many different colors and it's, I think it's pretty. Um, I'm seeing a, a picture of my dog who had passed away a couple years ago, who I still miss very much. Anyways, the point is I, I'm finding things that have some detail and that really ground me to the present. So I try to model that in session with people that I'm working with. And, um, uh, and then they, they do the same thing. And I try not to make it about me like I just did. See how I did that? That was making it about me, about showing off my origami. Don't do it like that where the focus shifts to you. You just want to provide some examples. That's all. Um, but anyways, five, four, three, two, one. Or what are five things you're seeing right now? What are four things that you could hear in the room or wherever you are? What are three things that you physically feel? Like I could feel my rump in my seat. I can feel my elbows on the elbow rests. I feel my back is a little bit sweaty because that's what happens when I get anxious or nervous. Um, so that's kind of gross. And now you all have that image. Um, I feel my feet down on the ground. Um, so those are some of the some examples. Um, what are some things that are sometimes difficult? Because um, like right now, I don't think I can release something you taste. And I spit out gum earlier, so I still have a remnant of stale gum mint in my mouth. Um, but so we just did a self-regulation, very sloppily, of course, because I just went through the regulation technique. Um, so you want to you want to provide these at multiple opportunities and uh, and make sure that you're able to practice them with the person you're serving. And hopefully they'll be able to learn these and begin using them um, throughout their week. And they'll be able to in incorporate those when they are ready to start processing and they're feeling like perhaps their emotions are a little too much in the moment. So we did, okay, let's, let's take a pause. Let's take a deep breath. Let's, um, let's actually just color for two seconds or for two minutes um, just to get back in the present moment and, and do something a little bit different. Um, it, again, the strategies can be really, really broad. Oh, I forgot I had this. Okay. So what a pleasant surprise. So the reason self-regulation techniques are important is that when we are activated, um, our executive function doesn't work as well. And I think I had shared this and I had talked a little bit about this before. 
And we kind of need the executive function to be working a little bit better when we are trying to process trauma with somebody. So it may be more difficult for a survivor to share with me their experience if they're really activated in that moment, because it might be difficult for them to put into words the emotions and experiences that they've had. So these self-regulation techniques will hopefully take some of that uh, uh, sympathetic nervous system, kind of dampen it a bit, put us back in the present moment, allow our executive functioning to, to kick back in. Hope that makes sense. Feel free to put questions in if you'd like. And so now the third phase, this is, uh, this is some of the really difficult work. Uh, it's all really difficult, honestly. But this is where we begin actually processing what had happened with uh, what had happened to that person. And just the process of narratively going through their experience, that's exposure. Um, and exposure is a, an important part of this process because we need to reteach the brain, and this kind of goes into our next, uh, our next slide, um, but we need to reteach the brain that what had happened is now in the past, and those threats are no longer are no longer present. Um, we need to help them make sense of those experiences. We need to validate the feelings that they have of how terrifying it was or how, um, how no one should ever be treated in the way that they were treated. Um, we need to validate that fear is an appropriate response. We need to validate that, yes, it makes sense. You want to drink because I wouldn't want to experience these emotions that come up all the time either. And so, Again, this is a big chunk of work. This can take quite a long time, especially if it's somebody who's, who has multiple traumas throughout their life. And how this looks for each individual is going to be different. If you look at EMDR, and for those of you who are familiar with it, it's really, it, their processing isn't actually verbalized out loud. It's about the individual thinking about that experience while they do um, uh, eye movements or hand gestures that are, by, that are uh, intended to stimulate the brain in a bilateral mechanism, which I'm sure I'm butchering some of the terminology for this, so I do apologize. Um, it's been a while since I've been trained in that treatment model and it's not something that I actually use in my practice. Um, and then there are actual exposure treatments. And that exposure, obviously, we don't want to put somebody back in a dangerous situation. In some ways, we, we can't, nor would we want to. But the exposure could be writing out that experience, revisiting that narrative writing, talking it through, writing it out again. Um, but that all has to be done carefully, uh, method methodically. Ooh, I didn't think I could get that word out. Methodically, with the consent of the individual, and making sure that you're supporting them throughout the, throughout the entire process. And they know that they have tools to use when it gets overwhelming, that they can do that five, four, three, two, one. They can take a deep breath. They can meditate for 30 minutes, whatever it is that, that they choose to do to help dampen that sympathetic nervous system. Um, so we have a slide here, and I, I think this is like such an important thing to, uh, did I skip a slide actually before I, oh, okay, no. Um, Oftentimes there, there are questions that come up like, is it safe to bring, like what if somebody's using substances? Um, are they, is it okay to start trauma treatment? And it used to be, and I certainly remember making these mistakes of thinking, no, if someone's using substances, then we can't work on the trauma. 
But remember, the use of the substance is most likely one of the symptoms of PTSD. So by saying, I can't work with you because you're using substances, um, can't do that until you're done. It's, it's kind of like going to the doctor, you know, if you're a diabetic and saying, wow, you're, you're eating too much sugar. So until you get that under control, I, I can't do anything. Um, and that's not that's not appropriate. Now, yes, there are uh, there are parameters around this. You know, of course, we don't want somebody who's uh, currently intoxicated um, that you're working with. And and even if that is the case, I, you don't want like perhaps they're in the room with you. It's clear that they're under the influence. Maybe that's a time to focus a little bit more on self-regulation techniques. Maybe that's a time to build the relationship. It's certainly not the time to start talking about the traumatic experience. And remember, sometimes the substances most likely are there to help the person or the individual avoid those feelings that they're experiencing. So we have to tread very carefully because as we go get into that phase where we are doing reprocessing, um, they're going to need their uh, coping strategies. And if their coping strategies are substance use, we need to make sure that they have alternatives as well. We need to make sure that they can do some of those breathing exercises, or maybe they have a support group. Um, you, maybe they are involved at the VA and there is a survivor support group there that, that really provides them as, as kind of an outlet to debrief from the intense work of trauma treatment. So the point is there's not a clear answer um, but it, sobriety, it, it should not be a requirement for, for treatment. And there are PTSD and substance use disorder treatments available out there um, if that's really a need for somebody to have. So, and again, that would be kind of a separate training and I, um, I would just don't have enough time to, to venture into today. And so finally, um, with these phases, I wanna talk about cognitive restructuring. And we're gonna do a couple little exercises um, to help demonstrate this and help demonstrate how difficult this is. So you've developed a relationship. It's taken a long time, but you've developed a relationship. You taught somebody coping strategies or ways to self-regulate their emotions and have kind of a safe place so they can escape to when processing trauma is a little much. You've gone through this uh, period of where you've actually been processing the trauma, whether it's narrative, whether it's through eye movements, whether it's journaling or just simply uh, going through it with the therapist or, or, or with your survivor. Um, now we're in this last phase of treatment where we have to start kind of restructuring how an individual is thinking. This element requires a ton of psychoeducation in language that people can understand. The concepts behind this are based in, I mean, they, they are very neurological. So Remember that you know if somebody's experiencing anxiety and PTSD, their um, executive function might be shut down a bit. So we have to really break this down, not because they're dumb, not because they may not understand big words. I know I'm not very good with big words. That's not the issue. It's simply the executive function, the ability to just absorb some complex concepts is sometimes really dampened. So we have to be careful about that. Um, it's really helpful to use stories or analogies to, uh, to kind of demonstrate some of these points. Um, and also it, it involves that, uh, that emotions are going to be triggered and individuals will have to experience that emotional discomfort as they create new behaviors and thoughts. So this is where that practice comes into play. So we had done an example early on 
that uh, earlier today where there was an, a, a woman who was afraid to go into stores because she was afraid of disappointment because that connected to the childhood trauma of her father and the sexual abuse he inflicted upon her. So part of the cognitive restructuring is would be for uh, for her to understand that when she goes into the store, she's still going to experience fear, and that's okay. But we have to do that as a part of practicing. And the more she's able to do that, to go into a store, experience that fear, but make it out okay, be able to survive that experience of going to the store, the more that happens, her brain is going to start to rewire that experience. Going to the store is no longer going to be connected to this fear that's connected to this possible disappointment that's connected to the sexual assault. Instead, our brains are going to start to recognize that, okay, going to the store is going to the store. And sometimes it's actually fun because I get to spend money that I may or may not have. Now, it takes a lot of time and practice, and we are going to show a video that it is so far from trauma, which might be re refreshing, but it really demonstrates how difficult that process can be to recreate those neural networks, but also how powerful that can be and how necessary it is for, for, part of this, uh, for this part of treatment. So. Hey, it's me, Destin. Welcome back to Smarter Every Day. You've heard people say it's just like riding a bike, meaning it's really easy and you can't forget how to do it, right? But I did something. I did something that damaged my mind. It happened on the streets of Amsterdam, and, and I got really scared, honestly. I, I can't ride a bike like you can anymore. Before I show you the video of what happened, I, I need to tell you the backstory. Like many six-year-olds with a MacGyver mullet, I learned how to ride a bike when I was really young. I had learned a life skill, and I was really proud of it. Everything changed, though, when my friend Barney called me 25 years later. Where I work, the welders are geniuses, and they like to play jokes on the engineers. He had a challenge for me. He had built a special bicycle and he wanted me to try to ride it. He had only changed one thing. When you turn the handlebar to the left, the wheel goes to the right. When you turn it to the right, the wheel goes to the left. I thought this would be easy, so I hopped on the bike ready to demonstrate how quickly I could conquer this. And here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Destin Salem. First attempt riding the bicycle. I couldn't do it. You can see that I'm laughing, but I'm actually really frustrated. In this moment, I had a really deep revelation. My thinking was in a rut. This bike revealed a very deep truth to me. I had the knowledge of how to operate the bike, but I did not have the understanding. Therefore, knowledge is not understanding. Look, I know what you're probably thinking. Destin's probably just an uncoordinated engineer and can't do it. But that's not the case at all. The algorithm that's associated with riding a bike in your brain is just that complicated. Think about it. Downwards force on the pedals, leaning your whole body, pulling and pushing the handlebars, gyroscopic precession in the wheels. Every single force is part of this algorithm. And if you change any one part, it affects the entire control system. I do not make definitive statements that often. But I'm telling you right now, you cannot ride this bicycle. You might think you can, but you can't. I know this because I'm often asked to speak at universities and conferences and I take the bike with me. It's always the same. People think they're going to try some trick or they're just going to power through it. It doesn't work. Your brain cannot handle this. For instance, this guy. I offered him $200 just to ride this bike 10 feet across the stage. Everybody thought he could do it. No, you didn't understand. You didn't understand. So, this way. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm sick. All right, so uh, 
Whatever you're in. Yeah. Good, good. No, no, you have to keep your feet on. Alright, keep it going. Like, you gotta start rolling at least. And go. Keep your feet on the pedal. Go. Go right off. Keep your feet on the pedal. Yeah, come on. Alright, one more time, one more time. Once you have a rigid way of thinking in your head, sometimes you cannot change that, even if you want to. So here's what I did. It was a personal challenge. I stayed out here in this driveway and I practiced about five minutes every day. My neighbors made fun of me. I had many wrecks, but after eight months, this happened. One day I couldn't ride the bike and the next day I could. It was like I could feel some kind of pathway in my brain that was now unlocked. It was really weird though. It's like there's this trail in my brain, but if I wasn't paying close enough attention to it, my brain would easily lose that neural path and jump back onto the old road it was more familiar with. Any small distractions at all, like a cell phone ringing in my pocket, would instantly throw my brain back to the old control algorithm and I would wreck. But at least I could ride it. My son is the closest person to me genetically, and he's been riding a normal bike for three years. That's over half his life. I wanted to know how long it would take him to learn how to ride a backwards bike, so I told him if he learned how to ride a backwards bike, he could go with me to Australia and meet a real astronaut. Are you going to give up? No. Go ahead. This is how it starts. Look at this. This is such a big deal. Get up. You got it. Did you see his brain get it? So he, in how many weeks have we been doing this? Two weeks? In two weeks, he did something that took me eight months to do, which demonstrates that a child has more neuroplasticity, am I even saying that right, than an adult. It's clear from this experiment that children have a much more plastic brain than adults. That's why the best time to learn a language is when you're a young child. All right, today's bike log. I can ride smooth, I can ride fast. I'm thinking the experiment is over. Okay, now I'm in Amsterdam, a city that has more bicycles than people. The question is, can I ride a normal bike now? I mean, I've spent all this time unlearning how to ride a bike. If I go back and try to ride a normal one, will my brain mess up? So I've tweeted a Smarter Everyday Meetup, if you will, and I'm gonna see if somebody brings a bicycle and I'm gonna try to ride a normal bike. It's backwards. backwards. This was one of the most frustrating moments of my life. I had ridden a normal bike since I was six, but in this moment, I couldn't do it anymore. I had set out to prove that I could free my brain from a cognitive bias. But at this point, I'm pretty sure that all I proved is that I could only redesignate that bias. So what you're not seeing is just a group of people here looking at me, looking at the strange American that can't ride a bike because they think I'm dumb. But I'm actually two levels deep into this because I've learned and unlearned. All right. After 20 minutes of making a fool out of myself, suddenly my brain clicked back into the old algorithm. I can't explain it, but it happened in a very specific moment. <laughs> I got it, I got it, I got it. I'm back. Oh, it clicked. It clicked. Hold it, it clicked. I got it, I got it. Okay, there it is. There was the moment. Okay, I can ride a bike. I tried to explain this to the people around me, and they just didn't get it. They thought I was faking the previous 20 minutes, and I couldn't get anybody to believe me. That looked like I faked that, didn't it? Yeah. Just to fake. Yes. You think I'm faking. You don't believe me. This is so weird. You're like, la, la, la. You think I'm lying, don't you? Yeah, I don't I'm not lying. 
I felt like the only person on the planet who had ever unlearned how to ride a bike, and I couldn't articulate it to anyone because everybody just knew that you can't forget how to ride a bike. So I learned three things from this experiment. I learned that welders are often smarter than engineers. I learned that knowledge does not equal understanding. And I learned that truth is truth, no matter what I think about it. So be very careful how you interpret things, because you're looking at the world with a bias, whether you think you are or not. I'm Destin. You're getting smarter every day. Have a good one. What this demonstrated is the really difficult work. So when when somebody has experienced trauma, they've attached that fear to to all of these different experiences. And we have to kind of undo some of that. It's not that that was ever wrong. It's not that there was ever anything wrong with the brain. It was doing what it was supposed to do. And this bicycle is such a great example. I mean, it took him eight months to learn how to ride a bike again in the way, I, I want to say a normal way. I, I don't like using the word normal, but you could, you could really see how, how challenging it is. And it takes a ton of practice. And during that practice, you're going to feel uncomfortable. You're going to be fearful. You're going to experience pain. And it's not going to happen in the same instant where for him, he's like, it, like it just kind of clicked. Most likely that's not going to happen. It's going to be over time. But we're starting to rebuild those neural pathways. And instead of connecting, you know, disappointment with fear, we're going to connect disappointment with simply, yeah, disappointment is disappointing and it sucks. But it's not going to bring up that same fear that it might have before. And that's just one example. Whatever those triggers were, whatever those associations were. So as part of a, a therapist's job in, in treating trauma, it's to rewire or rebuild some of those neural networks that, um, that have developed. And just to give one more example, and I'll try to do this quickly, and it may not translate over video, but to, uh, to demonstrate how difficult something is or how difficult it is to do cognitive restructuring, you know, let's go back to my client or to the client uh, in the example who was afraid to go into stores. That, I think the name was Jennifer. Jennifer knew that going into a store would be safe. She rationally knew that. However, that fear was preventing her from doing it. She was responding to the fear and not responding to the very rational world. And so repeated exposure of going to the store, realizing that she is safe, that no harm is going to come to her if she does that. Repeatedly doing that is slowly going to rebuild those neural pathways. Now, look at this example on the screen. You see, this is something Elizabeth started yesterday. She shared this observation or this picture. And there's two little bugs on the screen. And each of those bugs is on a little square. Um, and if I told you that those two squares are exactly the same, most like or the exact same color, you probably would not believe me because our brains have painted this picture. They've painted this, well, there's light coming in from the side, there's a shadow, and those two things are clearly not the same color. Well, this is an optical illusion. Those two squares are exactly the same shade of gray. It's not a trick of my screen. It's not like a weird computer glitch. 
those two squares are exactly the same. It takes us practice to continuously look at this picture and recognize that, oh my gosh, yes, that's, those are two of the same color gray squares on this screen. And what we have to do to be able to acknowledge that is we have to kind of separate those two squares from this, uh, this story uh, or this perception of this green cylinder on a chessboard with ants walking across it. We have to pull all of that away because in reality, that may have been the situation, but that, that's now in the past. Let's just focus on those colors and let's take a very rational look at it. Those two colors are exactly the same. And so we put that, um, let me just go back. Starting here, you see that those two are very different. Now we put a gray bar just to kind of demonstrate that those are two the same colors, but it's still a little bit hard to see. And now here, I hope this close-up demonstrates that those two squares are exactly the same shade of gray. The challenge that we just experienced of trying to shift our brains to see those colors is what somebody who's experiencing trauma, this is the exercise that they have to do constantly. However, it's laden with fear and sadness and isolation and anxiety. Um, so all this to say, and I hope that was able to demonstrate that um, what people have experienced, how their brains form these memories, there's nothing wrong with it. It's exactly what our brains are made to do. However, we sometimes have to rewire those things just a little bit more so that way those responses are staying where they belong. Those responses stay with that situation in the past, but not with the present. Um, I think that's it for me, and we'll now go over to you, Elizabeth. Um, I haven't seen any questions or comments lately, so please feel free to type those in if anything comes up for you, or if you had any questions, or if something didn't make sense. Yeah, thank you, David. Um, you see, I really struggle with it. Nancy, I see your comment. You see them as different. Yeah. Um, it helped when David first showed me this, and he had printed that out. And it's actually, you can fold the paper in a way where you can see that the colors match, and it's just mind-boggling. Um, that in that video of the bike really, oh, it just it so threatens my, our sense of um, how much control we have. and how in control we may feel over sort of the learning that we experience, but that it really does take time for the brain to create new neural pathways and that it's just wild. Okay, so let's talk about provider well-being. This is our last section. Um, at the end of yesterday's uh, session, I'm sorry, not yesterday, Wednesday session, uh, we had some sort of like off, off, the, off the time chatting about uh, what it's like to work as a provider, working with people who've experienced trauma when you've experienced it yourself. So going to touch a bit on that um, and how let's start with how people can be impacted um, by working with people who have experienced trauma and hearing about those traumas. So we're going to talk through really briefly, honestly, uh, four concepts, um, vicarious trauma, secondary traumatic stress, burnout and compassion fatigue. Um, and I just want to point out that none of these have anything to do with if you actually experience trauma on the job. And that can happen, right? Uh, some people could experience um, uh, an instance of actually uh, having a traumatic event occur on, while on the job. So none of these really encapsulate that. This is really more about 
what our experience is when working with people and making space for and empathizing with um, the traumas that they've experienced. So the first concept is vicarious trauma. We think of this as sort of like the emotional residue uh, from the exposure uh, of, of hearing people's traumas, being that sort of witness to the pain and fear and terror, terror that trauma survivors have endured. Um, and vicarious trauma really relates to impacts to sort of worldview, um, specifically sort of a, our beliefs, our belief system, our worldview around safety, trust, uh, sort of sense of self, self-esteem, around intimacy, control. These, these concepts are, are really what come to mind for vicarious trauma. So the impact of it can shift those in some people. Now, secondary traumatic stress, um, that's more of uh, the concept seems to be used more to describe when providers actually pick up some symptoms that are mimicking PTSD due to the work that they're doing. So this has more to do, so where if vicarious trauma has more to do with like uh, harmful changes that might occur in professionals' views of themselves or the world, secondary traumatic stress has more to do with like psychological symptoms that mimic PTSD, uh, but it's only acquired through this sort of uh, secondary exposure. So it's thought to be an acute reaction that develops more suddenly. Um, a lot of this is pretty vague, and these terms get thrown around pretty interchangeably, and that's really going to be the point I'm trying to make here. I just want to offer some attention and definition to these terms uh, because I know they're really common and used a lot. All right. Burnout. So burnout is related, but not really. So with burnout, this is a Maslach's definition of burnout with the three components of emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, decreased personal accomplishment. So when these three things are together, burn, these are the symptoms of burnout. Um, it's, it's really, you know, burnout doesn't really mean that our view of the world has been damaged or that we're experiencing distressing psychological symptoms, though some of this may be really distressing for some people, um, or that we've really lost the ability to feel compassion. It, it's pr pretty easily resolved. The burnout off clearly applies to sort of non-trauma-related work. Um, this is something that can be fixed from some, usually other factors in someone's work life. Um, and then our final concept is compassion fatigue. So don't, I really would love if these things were more like concrete concepts that were all very different and had different specific meaning, but they're not. The literature kind of messes around and has a lot of overlapping definitions and conceptualizations of, of, the, of the three that are not burnout. Um, compassion fatigue is sometimes seen as the bucket that uh, vicarious trauma and secondary traumatic stress could fall into, um, sort of like an overarching concept. Um, it refers to the profound physical and emotional erosion that takes place when helpers are unable to refuel and regenerate. That's one uh, perspective on it. Uh, it's, let's see here, uh, providers suffering from compassion fatigue are hypothesized to experience post-traumatic stress symptoms, disruptions to their cognitive schemas, relational difficulties, as well as physical, emotional, and or behavioral distress symptoms. So that does fall in line with covering uh, vicarious trauma and secondary traumatic stress. Uh, some authors also include burnout in this bucket. So putting this all together, um, I know I'm flying through this. It's not to say these concepts aren't important, um, and you can dig deeper into these definitions if it is helpful for you to sort of put words to what you may have experienced in your work. Um, but they're, they're used pretty interchangeably. Uh, burnout is the only one that's not trauma-specific, and the factors that impact whether any of these become present have to do with whether there's good support within the workplace, 
so if there's reflective supervision, um, also if there's supervisor and team support and really supportive work-life policies, someone's own personal trauma history, um, if you've got really relevant traumas or uh, many traumas in your past, that might make it so you develop some of these experiences more easily, and your coping capacity. So what, what do you have at your behest to use to cope with stressors, to cope with um, being witness to trauma in your work when it occurs? All right, any questions on that? I know I'm, I'm moving quickly, but I feel like this next slide is probably a little more of interest. So let's look at ourselves. I see a thumbs up, thank you. Um, this cheesy question here, um, what if we think of looking into a trauma-informed mirror? What if we turn the lens of trauma-informedness towards ourselves and look at our own experience as providers? So what do we need to consider to provide care to those who have experienced trauma and to maintain our own wellness? And some of those things, so to fill in that blank there, the mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the most, ignore the most part, blank of them all, what do you need? Do you need to be grounded? Is it important that you nurture your empathy? Um, is it hope? So feel free to fill in that blank with what, what really matters for you. What do you need to think about about yourself? What do you need to sort of pay attention to and make sure is nurtured and refueled and regenerated to be trauma-informed in your work and with yourself? What words come to mind for you? And if nothing does, that's okay. Um, I like human or resilient grounded. And in tandem with this, what are the self-reflective reflective practices that we can utilize? So we've turned this, this lens on ourselves. We're not just focusing on the people we serve. We're, we're taking care of ourselves because we have to take care of ourselves to do this work. And when we don't take care of ourselves doing this work, when we're experiencing any of those four very vague concepts, uh, that makes us not able to be as curious it makes it so we don't notice all those details. We don't anticipate or link together the trauma responses that people we serve may experience. We don't attribute some of their behaviors or uh, uh, things they say to uh, trauma etiology. And that's problematic. So we have to keep ourselves like a, a finely tuned, well cared for uh, machine, right? Um, and that is, this is the care that we have to put towards ourselves. And we have to think about our own risk and resiliency factors. Um, that's, that needs to be included in our self-reflective practice. So just as you would think about that for the people you serve, you can think about that for yourself. We've talked about just briefly sort of, sort of concepts we can use to make sense of our own experience. But what, is, what do we need to support um, our own work? And this came up in conversation yesterday, I'm sorry, Wednesday. Um, it's not enough to just be sort of trauma-informed and practice self-care and try and find a balance in our lives. We need to have good supervision. Uh, we need to work within organizations that have mission, values, and policies that are reflective of trauma-informed care. Um, I wish that there was more that we could all do, like starting at the bottom here, what can we do as direct service providers? We can do that self-care. Uh, we can go get therapy if we need it. We can find other supportive contexts. Uh, we can utilize uh, illicit sort of team support and uh, try and get that reflective supervision that's gonna be really helpful to us. And we can develop our own self self-reflective process. And what do we need from supervisors? If there are any supervisors on this 
uh, training, uh, you need to do the reflective supervision, not just administrative supervision. You got to uphold the policies that are created within your organization that ideally support trauma-informed work-life balance. So that means allowing people to take time off and vacations without any uh, sort of covert judgments or um, consequences. Ensure training of staff in trauma-informed care, um, balancing staff caseloads of trauma-intensive clients. So that's hard to do, right? Uh, but looking looking at that, seeing when you've got people that, that are working for you that are potentially just really overloaded with trauma-heavy, trauma-heavy content from the, the people they're serving. And what about as an administrator? So that's really, I mean, there's more power probably at the, the top of organizations and agencies and we really ever pay attention to, and the trauma-informed edict really needs to come down the line from them. It's not enough to just train direct service staff in trauma-informed care. Let's say you're working in a setting that has front desk staff um, or reception. They're not providing clinical care, but they are interacting with folks who are coming in, and it's important that they be aware of this lens as well. Um, developing mission values and policies that really align with the principles of trauma-informed care, so creating ways, uh, making sure there's um, uh, sub, uh, adequate PTO, that there's health insurance so people can go get therapy and not be financially burdened by that. Um, planning for and preventing and treating secondary traumatic stress with staff, like really paying attention to it and making sure that supervisors are held to a standard of addressing this in a intentional manner. I'm going to play a video. Um, this is, I'm going to show a book. So Laura Lipsky wrote this book, Trauma Stewardship, um, in conjunction with someone named Connie Burke. This is a wonderful resource, a guide for um, practicing trauma-informed care and also uh, meet, uh, supporting yourself through doing that. So stewardship, I think, is a wonderful word uh, in, in this context. She has this framework where she thinks of a lot of sort of um, signs or symptoms of a trauma exposure response. In this, in this video, she's going to go through all of them in a um, amusing and uh, helpfully descriptive manner. Um, let's see. John, do you want to throw up that trauma exposure response slide while I'm pulling up the video, David? Yeah. Thank you. All right. So these yeah. are really hard to read, but these are those many sort of, this is her framework of what it's like to, uh, what are responses to trauma exposure on behalf of providers? And, um, and while you pull that up, I, I'm just going to mention that uh, during the movie and, and probably momentarily, I'm going to put some information about doing the evaluation in the chat box. So um, your feedback, of course, is super, super important to us. And, uh, and also in order to get the CE certificate for nurses, doctors, psychologists, psychiatrists, um, social workers, and counselors, um, uh, you'll be able to get CEs once you complete the evaluation, you'll get a certificate. And Kristen, I see your comment about zoom in on the slide and actually we're not really able to do that. It's this grainy in real life as well. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but maybe when you get the handout, if you download it uh, off of our website, mm -hmm. um, you could probably, it'd probably be a little bit clearer in the PDF document. Yeah, I could also try and find a link and to throw in the chat box um, of this specific image that looks better, or is, you could zoom in from a uh, web browser, because this is just uh, Laura Lipsky's diagram. 
18 years ago, I found myself standing on top of a very tall cliff, having what I would only come to recognize many years later as a near-psychotic break. It would be fair for you to ask if I had always been that on edge, and the answer is no. But as many of you, I imagine, can relate to how I found myself on top of that cliff on that particular day was by way of a very long road. Like so many others, my childhood was filled with a lot of love and many challenges. Life came into particularly sharp focus for me when I was 10 years old. My mom, who was the healthiest person any of us knew, went into a doctor's appointment for what everyone thought would be a diagnosis of pneumonia at the worst and returned home having been told she had a very rare form of lung cancer. They gave her three months to live. She lived for three years, much of that time with one lung. And so she died when I was 13, and the sun rose and set with my mom, and I entered into my adolescence feeling if continuing to live wasn't going to be impossible, it was going to be highly improbable. So I navigated high school with a lot of overachieving. I spent my days getting straight A's and working three jobs, and I spent my nights planning on how I could end my life without causing my older brother, who'd always been my protector and my role model, too much pain. I did make it through high school, and then I landed in college, and I found myself sitting in one of those very large lecture halls, and my professor at the time, Professor Richard Applebaum, was talking to us about suffering on this one particular morning. In particular, he was talking about homelessness. And he was talking about it in a way that allowed time to stand still for me. He was building on what so many traditions have taught us for the beginning of time, really, that in life, it is said, there's equal measure of brutality and beauty, of pain and pleasure, of annihilating moments and of sublime moments. And yet there was a way he was talking about it, this whole conversation about equanimity that was completely new to me. During those three years when my brother and I were taking care of our mom, we were surrounded by a number of very, very loving people and kind people who gave us a lot of support for appearing to be stoic, for seeming to be strong, and for holding it all together. And what Professor Applebaum was talking about on that morning is when one is engaged in suffering, there is so much more to it than holding it all together. So what I knew was I wanted more of whatever he had going on. So I went up to him after class, asked how I could help. He scribbled on a piece of paper the name and number of our local homeless shelter's director. And that's when I started volunteering at age 18, spending the nights regularly volunteering in a homeless shelter. I went on to work with all forms of trauma and always within this kind of larger backdrop of systematic oppression and liberation theory. And what I knew was that I was so grateful that I had found something that made sense to me and that I felt passionate about. What I had no idea and wouldn't know for years to come was to what degree having borne witness to the suffering of my mom and then the subsequent years of bearing witness to so much suffering with so many people, to what degree that was taking a toll on me. And this is something that wise people have passed down for a long time and we know more and more about now because of the advances in neuroscience and the wonderful research that many of my esteemed colleagues are doing. But at the time, I had no idea about this cumulative toll. So one of the ways that the toll can show up is for those of you who are doing work. There are folks who do work, and as a result of the work you do, you might be exposed to things, either because of the content of what you're doing, but what a lot of my colleagues say is like, look, the work itself is the least of my concern. It's all my colleagues who put me over the edge, right? So sometimes the toll is because of the work. Sometimes the toll is because of the caretaking we do on our lives. Here she's saying, I feel like I need you less and less, Mom, now that I can make myself feel guilty all on my own. 
So much of the toll we feel is because many, many, many of you are caretaking in your personal lives. You're caretaking those around you. You're at home tending for folks who are returning from wars, folks who are ill, people who are in need in the community. Sometimes the toll we feel is because of the suffering of other living beings. This is Chris Jordan's wonderful work. And sometimes it's because of what's going on ecologically on the planet itself. This is the work of Vance Friedenberg. He's one of the leading scientists looking at the sixth mass extinction. But what we know is that when humans are exposed to suffering, hardship, crisis, trauma of humans, other living beings, or the planet itself, there's a cumulative toll. And there's a toll on us individually, there's a toll on your immediate relationships, there's a toll organizationally for those of you who have this exposure in your work, institutionally, systemically, we see it in movements we're a part of, we're seeing it throughout all of our communities and society as a whole. She's saying, speaking personally, I haven't had my day and I've never met any dog who has. <laughs> the other piece of this that's very important, at least when I do this work, is it's always held in a larger context of systematic oppression. You know this so well, but a reminder that the degree to which you're impacted by the lives you're living and the work you're doing is intimately tied to the fact that we're in a society with so much supremacy. And if we're in a society where there's no oppression, there's no racism, sexism, homophobia, heterosexism, ageism, ableism, classism, and xenophobia, so much of the suffering we are tending to wouldn't exist, and the remaining bits that exist in life, we would all be affected by that so differently. I have no doubt that all of you have so much more insight and personal awareness than I did back in the day, and that for those of you who know what this toll is and when you feel this toll, either because of what's going on in your personal lives or on the job, that you're able to identify it. But I was not at all able to identify it. So it was about 10 years into my career when a critical mass of people started kind of getting up in my face doing that, hey, Laura, you're tripping. You should take some time off. And I'm sure somebody said something earlier than 10 years in, but I was very stubborn and successfully ignored them. But 10 years in is when there was a critical mass of people up in my grill really begging me to look at this. And what some of you will appreciate is that a number of those people were clients I was serving, which you can imagine is always so disconcerting. You know, <laughs> survivors of domestic violence living in a shelter who can't go anywhere, begging me not to come to work. So people were doing their due diligence, right? But at the time, I was so arrogant, I was incredibly cocky, and I was entirely self-righteous. I was doing God's work. You could either step up and help me do God's work, or you could step off. But I was definitely not going to have a conversation with you about how I was affected by my job. And like many of you, possibly, I was raised in a number of traditions that implicitly and explicitly communicated, if you care enough about what you're doing, if you are down with your cause enough, if it's it matters enough to you, you're going to suck it up. So this whole conversation about how to sustain was not something I was engaging in. But finally, the pressure mounted. I caved. I didn't take any significant time off, but compromised. We took a short trip, went to visit our family who lived in the Caribbean. So on a particular day, we head out as a family on this hike, and we get halfway through our hike, and we summit what we wanted to summit, and there we are standing on the top of these cliffs, right? So the family's gathered around, tiny Caribbean island, standing on the top of these cliffs, looking out. The first thing I remember thinking was, this is so beautiful. The second thing I immediately thought was, I wonder how many people have killed themselves by jumping off of these cliffs. Right? 
And at the time, I worked at Harborview Hospital, which you know is the level one trauma center for the whole Northwest. So it wasn't my own suicidality at play anymore. It was because of the years of bearing witness to other suffering that naturally, instinctually, one starts triaging, of course, right? So you start thinking, where would the helicopter land? Does the helicopter land on the cliff? And would you belay down to the person on the beach? Would the helicopter actually land on the beach? Is there a level one trauma center in the Caribbean, you ask yourself? Do they fly you to Miami? Would they stop you in customs? You know, you kind of go through the whole thing, right? So I said this out loud because I was merely presuming I was just giving voice to inevitably what was going to come up in a family conversation because who stands on top of a cliff and does not wonder where the nearest level one trauma center is? But apparently in my family, nobody was thinking that. So it got even quieter than it had been. Really long, very uncomfortable pause happened. And ultimately it was my stepfather-in-law who said, are you sure all this trauma work hasn't gotten to you? And honestly, this was the first moment I had any insight into, you know, check it out. There are people who can go on a hike and not wonder where the nearest level one trauma center is. But I'll tell you, it wasn't me, it wasn't anybody I was hanging out with, right? Because one of the things about this toll is it's slow moving. It is very hard to gauge over time, individually and collectively, if we are being affected by what we're exposed to. And also what happens is we get very isolated. So this was one of those moments that maybe you've had where kind of everything starts flooding in, right? And then I was like, oh, well, if this is the case, maybe it's also the case that there's people who still date out there in the world, and those people who date aren't doing back background checks on everybody they date, right? Maybe there's people who can go to a playground. It's just a lovely place for children. You're not worried about like head injuries or Amber Alerts hat, right? So, but this is what happens that over time, what you're exposed to affects your entire worldview. There are so many ways that we can be affected individually and collectively by exposure to vicarious trauma, compassion fatigue, secondary trauma. Many people call it many different things. But this exposure affects all of us so differently. What I have found through the privilege of getting to work with everyone from zookeepers to judges, school teachers to nurses, ecologists to activists, is that it is breathtaking the commonalities of how one is affected. Right? So some of the ways we find you feel like you're not doing enough, right? So here they're saying we just haven't been flapping them hard enough. So this is where you feel like you're not doing enough. You constantly feel like you should be doing more, right? Another one could be morale. So they're saying, I see you've done time, so working in a cubicle shouldn't be a problem. So I work with organizations nationally, internationally, and one of the things we find so much is the morale, the very, very quickly eroding morale. Here he's saying, I bark at everything. You can't go wrong that way. So hypervigilance, many people can relate to a sense of hypervigilance. This is where you lose your ability to flow in, you know, really fluidly in between your sympathetic and your parasympathetic nervous system. You become in kind of a hyperarousal. I had a colleague say to me, she was a child support enforcement officer, and she said to me, I can tell you which ones of my son's friends are going to grow up to not pay their child support. <laughs> and her son was five years old, right? Here he's saying, no, not there, please, that's where I'm going to put my head. So exhaustion is something many people can relate to. And not the exhaustion before you work out, but this is an exhaustion where you are tired in your soul, you are tired in your spirit, you are tired throughout your bone marrow. All of your ancestors were tired people. Right? There is the avoidance. He's saying, no, Thursday's out. How about never? Is never good for you? This is where the best part of your day at work is where you don't have to do your job. Right? And then there's the avoidance in our personal lives. She's saying, it's too late, Roger. They've seen us. Cynicism, many of you can relate to. They're saying, but she'll come down eventually, and she'll come down hard. 
So what many of you might be able to relate to is not the pure cynicism, but the cynical humor, right? And then anger and rage. He's saying it's a new antidepressant. Instead of swallowing it, you throw it at anyone who appears to be having a good time. And here he's saying, I can cure your back problem, but there's a risk you'll be left with nothing to talk about. So the other thing we see here is the externalizing that happens. When more and more people are asked to do more with fewer resources, we see this whole seduction to externalizing. So this is where you start saying to yourself, you know, I would actually be fine taking care of my loved ones if I could have different loved ones to take care of. Or people say, I would love coming to my job every day if my immediate supervisor would just retire. Right? And then there's blind spots that we have. So one of the things that we notice a lot that people have is blind spots. I'll share the story to illustrate it. This is a water bottle. It says the Oregon Coalition Against Domestic and Sexual Violence. It's one of approximately, you know, over 100 water bottles I have in my home that have been gifted to me like incredible programs that many of you are involved with, right? And every water bottle I have in my home has something stenciled on the side like this, which has, you know, domestic violence, sexual assault, HIV AIDS, infant mortality, flood, hurricane, tornado, tsunami, death, destruction, right? And I'm just thinking, this is great. I got water bottles. Every day is Earth Day here. This is fantastic. But what it also means is these are the water bottles that go with my kids to swim meets, basketball tournaments, <laughs> soccer games, right? And I'm not thinking anything of it. But then I was unpacking my child's lunch some time ago, and I noticed that at school she found the provisions to kind of hack over the word sexual, right? So she's not exactly old enough to know what sexual violence is. She's definitely old enough to know you're not sitting at the lunch table at school with a water bottle that says domestic and sexual violence on it, right? I don't know why, but I decided to tell this story at a very large conference of police officers, and when the break came, a police officer came up to me two centimeters from my face, 20 bucks in her hand, and said, go get your kid a proper water bottle. <laughs> so I feel like you know things have gone very wrong in life when you've got the cops giving you cash, instructing you on parenting, right? And then dogma and self-righteousness, okay? So here he's saying, your mother and I are separating because I want what's best for the country, and your mother doesn't. <laughs> and then addictions, which many of us can relate to. She's saying, of course I drink during the day. I'm way too tired to drink at night. <laughs> and numbing. So here he's saying, could we have the dosage? I still have feelings. One of the things I want to say to us about numbing, it is incredibly seductive with the volume and the intensity of suffering on the planet today. It is incredibly tempting and seductive to become numb. And what I want to offer to you is how critical it is that we continue to strive to cultivate our capacity to be present. One of the reasons we want so much to be present is we remind ourselves with everything that is out of our control every single day, one of the things that remains in our control at any given time is your ability to bring your exquisite quality of presence to what you are doing and to how you are being. That presence we know can interrupt the systematic oppression which is causing so much harm and can transform the trauma that is arising. It is very easy to get in that place of you have no idea what my life is. If you lived here, if you did my job, if you saw what I saw, and that's when we call on our ancestors and that's when we call on so many people who have come before us who remind us 
that when they could not change anything external, they were able to shift everything as a result of where they put their focus. And again, I don't know any of you personally, but the assumption I'm going to make is none of us would go up against any of these folks, right? We're not going to, oh, Desmond, I know things got rough for you in South Africa, what with apartheid and all, but here in Washington State, we got a few things going on, right? Here he's saying, this is the barn where we keep our feelings. If a feeling comes to you, bring it here and lock it up. The other reason I want to bring us back to presence is I want to remind you that while I know we have so many different life circumstances, I believe we have a shared ethic of doing no harm. If you are numb, you will not be able to gauge whether or not you're doing harm. And if we believe in what Chief Self talks about with the web of life, or what Martin Luther King talked about with the single garment of destiny, you all know so well that there are so many parts of this web that are profoundly compromised. And many of you are bringing heart and soul to tremendous sacrifice to tend to parts of this web that are compromised. If the way you're doing that out there means in any way you are neglecting your immediate part of the web, cutting off circulation to your immediate part of the web, lighting your immediate part of the web on fire, it is not ethical practice, it's not integrity-based practice, it's not sustainable. The other piece with numbing out and what we've learned from so many people who've come before us and in so many traditions is you don't get to selectively numb. So if you're going to numb out your sorrow, you're also going to numb out any possible happiness you can have. If you are going to numb out the heartbreak, you're going to numb out any ability to survive noticing what is beautiful. And the other thing is your mind and body and spirit will keep trying to bring itself back to a full range of feelings of that whole equanimity and that spaciousness which means that's why you, know, you can work on coalition after coalition of peace building and then you get in the lunch line or on the freeway and you don't let anybody merge in front of you, right? And we defend that. We say how I conduct myself on that freeway or when I'm getting my food at lunch has nothing to do with the other work I'm doing. <laughs> Howard Thurman reminds us, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and then go and do that because what the world needs is people who have come alive. So we remember that with the magnitude of suffering at play on the planet right now, we are in desperate need of folks who have the wherewithal and who have the courage to be present. We know from that place of presence, it is possible to aspire to do no harm it is possible to transform whatever trauma arises, and it is possible to continue to work to dismantle the systematic oppression which is causing such a legacy of suffering. From that place of presence, we know that it is possible to metabolize whatever arises in life, the waves of life which will continue to present to us what they present, there is a way to metabolize that and integrate it so that over time you find that it contributes to your awakening. That the longer we get to walk on this planet, we find we have deeper compassion, vaster humility, and we are able to come up and out of the narrow places. And from that place of cultivated presence, we remember that it is possible to create and to sustain an ability to be truly transformative. Thank you. So really quickly, I want to touch on self-care. Um, self-care often gets uh, 
Well, it gets a wrap of like, really, I have to do this myself. Um, and uh, it comes off as do yoga and meditate. Um, but it needs to be more than that. It needs to be more than like taking yourself out for a nice meal or something like that. It needs to be a personal and professional responsibility uh, that enables you to continue working to help others. So it, um, we're going to show you a tool in just a second that you can use to explore creating a self-care plan that looks at all of the areas of your life where you could um, enhance uh, how you're practicing self-care. I believe that's on the next slide. This is the comprehensive self-care plan created by Patricia Burke. Um, so it's going to go through different areas of your life, and this is something that you could work on and create and see if it's helpful to you. Uh, the next slide is on the professional quality of life measure. So this is a psychometric tool that can be used to measure compassion, satisfaction, burnout, and secondary traumatic stress. Um, it's, uh, I believe, it's free and uh, readily available. Um, there's a good bit of literature on it. You could check it out and uh, use it maybe with your yourself, uh, colleagues. Just another uh, tool that you could access on your own time following this training. I want to make sure I'm not missing anything in the chat real quick. But yeah, I agree, John. She's a great speaker, very uh, amusing. And that sort of, there's many different sort of responses to working with people who've experienced trauma. I think in some ways that's a, the variety of them. There's so many, but they, they really make sense, right? How much of that resonated with you? Um, and maybe for better or for worse, right? Um, but it, I think she really hits the nail on the head. And if you pick up the book, Trauma Stewardship, that uh, goes into depth on that as well. Okay, I see um, Eve, you're asking about providers that have, that have the added pressure of being mandated reporters. Can I address that? Right. I think there are a lot of responsibilities um, that, are, that are sort of put upon us, right? We're mandated reporters, um, so that uh, applies to a few different situations. Um, there are always going to be sort of constraints that increase, you know, how we may morally relate to uh, the work that we're doing, I think. Um, and I think the same rules apply. Um, with that added, added pressure and added stress, that's something we have to really deliberately and intentionally um, process and work through via all of the supports that we can uh, gather in our work lives. David, do you have thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I just, it's a really great question, and I have to acknowledge it is really difficult to have to do, um, to have to do the mandated reporting. And even though sometimes we, they, I mean, I know I have to remind myself that this is the reason we are doing this for mandated reporting is because we want to help this family. And however, it, it doesn't always feel that way. Sometimes it feels as if it's going to do more harm than good, or it's going to break that relationship that we have with that individual. And sometimes it does. Sometimes it does actually break or damage that therapeutic relationship that you may have with somebody. And that's another thing that we, you know, looking at what Laura said, it's like another stressor that we have to deal with. Um, there's no way around it. There's no way of that we have to report and there's a reason for that because it does save the lives of children and if you've worked with people who've been abused by by parents and uh uh and knowing how yeah sometimes that it could like you wish that child uh, uh child protection would have uh, intervened earlier um 
but yeah, there's, there's no, there, there's no work around. It's something that we have to apply our radical acceptance skills on to say, you know what, this is going to be really difficult for me to do. And I'm going to make, I, I have to make sure that, uh, that I have a response for how my self-care is going to look because I'm gonna need a little extra today after I make this report or after I talk with the family to let them know that um, I've had to report them to child protection or adult protection. Um, so yeah, I, I wish I had an easy answer for you, Eve, and I, and I don't. It's more justification for why we have to listen to what, um, what the speaker just presented and how important that is. It's, also justification for the incredibly difficult work that everybody on this uh, on this uh, training is doing every single day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a very good question, though. I think, um, gosh, I think about Paul Broadwood's training and how relevant that really kind of is to this sort of question, um, the moral distress uh, that we experience and what to do with that. And so here's the link to additional trainings. It, it's not a hyperlink, of course, so you, you will have to type it in, but you could always go to our website, that's pmhp.ucla.edu, and there's a training at home link, in, or yeah, a training at home link in the top right corner, and that'll be a calendar of everything. Um, and uh, thank you so much for uh, being part of this training for two days. Elizabeth and I were, were chatting like when we were talking about the pathology and how we try to sometimes steer away from that, but um, also looking at this, and I've heard this before, viewing P PTSD as, almost as a neurological disorder because of some of those things that you're speaking about and things we've talked about and that there are neural pathways that, that need to be readjusted. Um, and it sounds something like that addresses that directly. Yeah, it really does seem like it would pair well with the sort of just everything else that's usually a component of treatment. Like it's off to do the cognitive restructuring quite likely. So um, well, thanks again for those on the line and we're gonna go ahead and close the call. So I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Thanks for being with us. And um, yeah, I'm sure we'll see you all again soon. Yeah, thanks everyone. Take care.